0: Hello and welcome to BoothCast. On BoothCast, I speak to people who inspire me about sport, business and the winning mindset. Um, This BoothCast is brought to you by Booth Training and very fortunate to have Bonnie Hancock in the house. Um, She's currently paddling around Australia. She's done about just over 5,000 kilometres of her 11,000 kilometre journey. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about that. We're also going to go into um, her journey as an athlete, obviously growing up in Sortel, um, being a, an elite ironman, a professional ironman for a long period of time and I guess how, how she's gone into dietetics, how she's um, now wanting to paddle around Australia. So Bonnie, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you so much. It's so nice to be here and in person as well. Yeah. So um, we've been here since around Monday since we, we paddled around the, the southwest tip and made our way down towards Perth. So I've got one or oh, two more days off, and then back into the heavy paddling on Sunday. So it's been so nice to, to take a little bit of a break.
0: Yeah, and what um, for me, like I guess getting started, what got you into water sports in general?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that's going way back to growing up in Sawtell So Sawtell was a little um, town in Coffs Harbour, which is about three hours south of the Gold Coast, and basically mum and dad wanted to keep us safe so we grew up right on the beach with a little beach track and uh, mum had grown up in coughs and always surfed and swam dad grew up in Tasmania so he was more cricket and running um, but always had that discipline for sport so with my three sisters from a young age we joined Sawtail Surf Club and the beach was just our life we were down there every day um, it got to the stage where we were you know old enough to look after ourselves or my older sisters looked after me and whether that was swimming, taking our boogie boards out or on our little nipper boards, the beach was just everything. So we, uh, we naturally gravitated towards the water and, and never looked back to it.
0: And was that like when you were growing up with your sisters, was it always surf far that you were doing um, from a young age or were you doing swimming and running and that type of thing?
1: As many sports as we could. Mum and dad didn't really believe in specialising, I guess, in a sport from a young age. And I'm really passionate about that as well. I think yep. kids should try so many different things. So we were doing cross country running around the local tracks in the mud, we were doing athletics on the you know tartan tracks and um, lucky enough to go to state for that touch football, basketball, definitely swimming, um, surfing as well. So yeah, it's it's really important not to just lock yourself into that one sport because as we you know you can you can fall out of love with it as well if you do too much of the one thing too early.
0: Yeah absolutely and when you were obviously going through your junior career and you're going through these 10, 12 different sports that you've just named. How did you sort of define which one you wanted to pursue and when was that critical moment where you're like, okay, this is what I want to do. I'm going to start focusing down on that.
1: I think you do tend to gravitate towards obviously what you like and what you're good at. I just, I found that the surf lifesaving saving and everything about reading the surf and going out and catching waves and that side of thing just really drew me in. And I think I was from a young age, a little bit of a daredevil. I, I don't really get scared in the ocean. And I found that in in races or in training, I, I sort of love taking the big waves. And I think my sister Courtney and even I mean India and Georgia were sort of the same. And we were out there kind of spurring each other on to take the waves. So I think for us, we sort of naturally gravitated towards the surf and the big surf. And I love nothing more than that adrenaline rush still of taking off on a big wave and and you know trying to hold it on your ski or on a board. So it was the the aspect of surf was that unpredictability. And when you compare, you know, for a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old going and swimming laps of a pool and being a pool swimmer, which was sort of that other direction we could have taken, you know, in the afternoon, you're out with your friends on your boards, like yahooing down the wave. So to me, it was an easy choice. And um, Courtney and I particularly always wanted to be professional Women. We grew up watching Carla Gilbert. We absolutely idolised her. She won everything, you know, with Rain Corbett. And so we just wanted to be Carla. We wanted to be Carla. And at 17 and Courtney was 18, we, we moved to the Gold Coast to, to try and pursue that.
0: And you've made your first professional series at 17. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think you'd ever been ever picked up a paddle by that stage. Um, how, what was that like actually stepping into um, surf lifesaving and that professional realm, not having to ski before, throwing yourself in the deep end? and you've moved to the gold coast at a young age as well how important well first off how important was Courtney to be there for you and secondly how was it just jumping into a ski in a professional race
1: I look back now and realize I was just a naive little 17 year old I'd grown up in Sawtell. it's a super protective environment you know I just finished school in November so I yeah basically the nutrient trials were in January and uh Packed up the car, um, Court was the same. She moved up a little bit earlier than me, so she had a bit of a gap here back and forth. And that's when Pat O'Keefe was, as you know, at Northcliffe. And um, it was the year before we'd had a meeting with Pat and, and we'd made the decision to go to Northcliffe. Uh, I think they'd won in terms of the Cooling of Gold. They had first attempt in the Cooling of Gold at Northcliffe. Like that shows how dominant the girls were there. And the boys as well with Shannon and Pierce Leonard and Zane Holmes there at the time, um, Nick Crilly as well and Tate Smith. But basically, um, yeah, I had until January to try and make those trials. And I basically got on a ski. I think I hadn't touched a ski until like September, October. Yeah. The year before. And it was a total crash course in Sortel, moving up to the Gold Coast and trying to do these paddle backs of like 20K. So I pretty much had a two-month boot camp and I totally credit it to Pat he's the one who set me up for that to get me in the biggest blessing in disguise the trials were supposed to be at Kira and the surf was like eight ten foot cycling as well so the trial actually got moved to uh, Red Cliff which is up near Brisbane dead flat that is what got me through so I was able to get on that ski and paddle and just with a terrible technique just grind my way through fitness wise I remember um the very first race was my first ever race on a ski and winding up next to Christy Munro, who I'd absolutely idolised my whole life, and Naomi Flood on the other side. yeah Terrifying, but I managed to get through on board and swim. Yeah, And Courtney got through as well. So we were able to, to make the series together. And uh, from there, I had to really get in and, and work on my ski because we are going to be out in the surf with the big girls.
0: <clears throat> Okay, so you're moving up to moving up the Gold Coast. You've made your first professional Iron Woman series. Um, you obviously really enjoyed um, surf lifesaving at, at the time. What was it about, I guess, surf lifesaving in general that really drew you in? You spoke about Carly, you spoke about Christy Monroe. Was it, was it the Uncle Toby's? Was it the was it What other influences did you have that made you really want to pursue that dream? Because obviously there's always all these other opportunities as a, a young person, as a teenager that you can chase. But what made you want to go, I'm going to be an Iron
1: I think also that dad saw how much fun we had in the surf. Like we you just could not wipe the smile on our faces. And I think that he certainly encouraged that as well. I think that your parents play a huge role in, in influencing you as a young person. Yeah. And the biggest difference there is that dad, and I say dad as well, mum was so hugely supportive. Um, dad, in terms of that um, sporting aspect had done more on the elite level with his marathon running and things like that. I think that we tried so many different sports and the surf was just where we were so extremely happy. It provided a wonderful balance with academics as well. Yeah. Um, I think dad more than anyone just loved watching the Uncle Toby's in the medley as much. And I remember running around with like a broomstick pretending to paddle like in big Carla. And, yeah, I think certainly it was his influence in allowing us to get to training and driving us to swimming, driving us to our sports carnivals. I was recalling the other day um, a weekend where Dad had driven us down to Sydney and back and, you know, straight back into work the next day. We got back at, like, 3 o'clock in the Mm. morning. He was so fatigued. He actually drove through the garage with the board still on top. Oh, no. And he had three little girls giggling in the back and just, what he would have gone through and the sacrifices he made Uh, i think that was that was quite influential and it's only later that i realized the sacrifice and dedication from the parents but also find that balance and not pushing and that's why at 31 years old i'm still out here doing what i love because Mm -hmm. i wasn't pushed in that way and that that can be a difficult thing as well as a coach to see that sometimes and on the gold coast that, that bit of pushing and and that sort of thing so we just had a wonderful wonderful environment um and it was what we loved and i think as well as you know the influence of your siblings you've got brothers my elder sisters were doing it they were loving it i idolized them i basically wanted to be Courtney and be georgia so i was doing what they were doing so that was probably one of the key influences too
0: and how important was that sibling rivalry that you speak about because i know with my brothers we were always pushing each other like training like he used to do a session with my dad on Wednesday mornings. We used to do a 2K run like pretty much every Wednesday. And it was a race. Like we, we always wanted to beat each other. And like when we went like, swim training was always trying to beat your brother. And I think that gave me that competitive drive as I went forward. But it also allowed me to deal with that competitiveness like all the time. Because it's something that as an athlete, you've got to be able to turn up and race on the day. But if you're racing and training all the time, racing mm-hmm. becomes just training.
1: It's like you desensitize to the nerves as well. Mm. I know a lot of kids, um, you know, on the Gold Coast, um, having coached at Carawa, you know, this is the first year I haven't coached in about 10 years, which is crazy doing this paddle. But um, a lot of kids get so nervous on race day and they underperform and they've done all the work and they're capable. I'm exactly the same, like the same. Like I was racing my sisters every session. I used to be basically the little one who would like sit on the wash and come around and sprint at the end, like so annoying for them. But for me, that was my, my, you know, speed in a race was my strength. And that was often annoying my sisters with it at training. So it is so crucial when you grow up in a place like Sortel. I mean, it's a population of 2000 people. There was like maybe 10 of us at the surf club, Um, we'd go away and race at Aussie titles. We'd take like five of us. And yeah. we were just so lucky to have a wonderful coach in Terry De Carl. And there was a, another girl, um, Kayla Russell, who I'm still friends oh, with, yeah, and, yeah. and her sister Holly. Yeah. And they did so extremely well. So I think, like, it was pretty cool to be winning some state gold medals and Aussie gold medals from a, a club like Sortel. And it just shows it's all about that support, but also that rivalry. And I think with your siblings, just, I mean, we were always having the most hilarious little fights at home and then be best friends and that kind of thing. And sort of into training, yeah, you just want to be your older sisters and at the same time, you absolutely love them. So that's what that's what drove me forward to some degree.
0: Yeah, it's just really critical to have that good support network. And I think you girls obviously all got around each other and you stayed at Sawtell for such a long period of time, really, because you see a lot of people now, like at a young age, will go to a different club to, um, to, to get into those teams or to be able to pursue their... Um, their dreams, I guess, at a young age. But Mm. speaking of coaches, um, you spoke with Terry um, just then. How Was he your only coach going through? Obviously, you would have had uh, influence from your parents, like were your sisters coaching you? And how important were those coaches along the way?
1: Hugely important. And, you know, on the Gold Coast, um, I I say to the kids often, I say, appreciate how how lucky you are to have someone maybe overseeing the whole program or like the opportunities um, kids get maybe for, I do a lot of dietitian consults, yeah. physios do consults. In Sortell, we're just winging it. Like, we were just doing our best. We had Terry de as a local board coach. Um, my first uh, ski-pulling coach was Steve Coulter. He came from Manly, and he would be down there on holidays. So that's where I learned to ski-pull.
0: It was holidays with him as well yeah, as right. Dave
1: Leeds, one of the ex men, and it was just literally when you could get on the ski with them. There was no real planning involved in yeah. that. Yeah. Um, Certainly the swimming was a huge aspect for us, as you know, that swimming is the base for men, and women It's very hard to be on that top level without a solid swim leg. You know, yeah. it doesn't have to be your best, but you do a huge amount of hours in the pool, as we know. Um, so, you know, I had a couple with that. Um, Michael Mullins, Cheryl Neville, uh, Ian Jones. So we had a squad which had pool swimmers and surf swimmers, and I think that really pushed us to be better swimmers because you're trying to keep up with the pool swimmers. Yeah. And they're amazing off the turns and the dives. So you're trying to make it up by being really strong in your stroke yeah. and that kind of thing. Um, so it was just a bit of a, a piece putting a piece of the puzzle together. You mentioned your dad taking the two K runs. My dad was the same. There was a sand in the session we would do, and he would stand up the top, we'd start down the bottom, soft sand on Sawtell Beach, like 10 in a row. And yeah. like with my older sisters trying to keep up and that was you get to a race and you transition and be stronger than anyone else because of it. Yeah. So dad was a crucial part in overseeing that and I think sort of protecting us to some degree too. Um, but in a small town, you're doing the best, you win it, you come to the Gold Coast and you realise how professional the environment is and that's when you go to the next level.
0: And when you first moved up to the Gold Coast, um, who were the people at the club? Because we probably went to North pretty similar mm-hmm. time, but I think ended up there probably a year after you went. Mm-hmm. I think I was last year, 19, when I first mm-hmm. moved up to the Gold Coast. So it must have been 2009, maybe mm-hmm. 2008 or something. It's yep. probably yep. just a year older yep. than me. Um, going from a, a sore level to, I guess, a professional training environment, as professional training environment as you can get, mm-hmm. and so far, saving at the time with the guys like Pat Key, but then you also would have your sister there. And I guess like Crystal Smith and a few of those other really top um, women, what was like that getting thrown the deep end and was it intimidating when you first started?
1: I don't think I said more than like the word good for the first two months and people say, Bonnie, how are you today? I'd say good or oh, good, thank you. I couldn't even say how are you back? I was so I was so intimidated. These are my idols. So yeah. people like Crystal Smith, like uh, Christy, who uh, was Harris at time. Christy Cameron, yep. uh, you know Hayley Bayda had just left. Shereen um, Uh We had uh, Elizabeth Plummer. Yep. You know, these are my absolute heroes in in the male side. Shannon next time Zane Holmes, Pierce Leonard, Tate Smith, Nick really like you just didn't know where to look. Um, yep. And I tell her, oh, the story. Okay, so Courtney wore a pink rashi one time. It was a dolphin rashi to training and it had a signature on it. And um, she stood next to this person on the line it happened to be Zane Holmes. And I think someone looked across and said, Courtney, nice signature. So she was wearing the Rasher with Zane's signature on it, standing next to him on the line. And she was so embarrassed. And it was just so funny. Like this is, we literally were, you know, a couple of years prior, the kids going up to these people at a carnival saying, hey, could you sign my shirt or whatever. So you are, thrown in the deep end it's sink or swim next thing you're out paddling trying to stay on this cleanest wash your best board paddler in the world you either go to that next level or you don't and to get the results you have to because you know these girls are winning so that's where the stand is and that's why those big gold coast clubs and big sydney clubs produce the results and you see the young kids come through and you see the kids like uh joe collins and lucy Derbyshire, they have absolutely stepped up. They're incredible athletes. But you've seen the improvement. And, and I look at that and it so much reminds me, just of me at that age, you are so desperate to keep up with your idols. You do. And next thing you find yourself leading a race in the Kellogg's or whatnot. And um, that can be a really interesting environment too. I remember I'm um, going to the Coogee Mutual and final round and find myself out in front. And it was almost like a pinching moment. And, and it's like, focus back in. Yeah. So, you either sink or swim, as you know, you're surrounded by your idols and um, and that's what produces the results of those parts, I believe.
0: And how important were those results for you? Because you, you wouldn't have gone up to Northfield for no reason. You would have wanted those results and you would have got a little bit of results to so tell you. I know you were in a lot of New South Wales teams, that I'm pretty sure you've been like a few of the junior Australian teams, under 23s. Mm-hmm. Um, when you went to Northfield, what was the goal? Like, what did you want to do?
1: all I wanted was to
0: make that series. I
1: wanted nothing more. And when you want something more than anything else in your life, you will do anything to make it happen. Mm. So I went up there, we were training three times a day. I did not miss a session for months. Like you could not make me miss a session. I was there. I was early. I was the person doing the stretches and you know, Pat would do anything for you. Like he, um, you know, with myself, like, took me to physio when I started getting back here, probably from overtraining. Um, you know, it was just his dedication, basically. And, um, you know, they've come so far in terms of um, the science behind it and that kind of thing. But at that time, he was a trailblazer in that area, making us put ice vests on, making us get in an ice bar, um, that kind of thing. But for me, it was just following what those people would do. Someone like Crystal Smith, she is one of the most gifted athletes that I've ever had the privilege to train with and um just seeing how she went about things and I think as well having the the influence on me with those girls was their willingness to help me I guess with Crystal and building confidence up with Cherie with giving me tips in the surf and even one time I remember in the canal she was telling me about the different currents in the canal and went to paddle and and, and disciplines as well and obviously having courtney there who was just thriving at that stage and starting to get some race means so these girls it's not only their ability but it was who they were as people um you know lucky enough later for people like harriet brown to come and join me too who i grew up racing with and to see where she is these days phenomenal mm-hmm. and she was a bit like me um you know growing up in a sort of town where there's not a bunch of people doing super well yeah they step up so um the tips those girls gave me and and how they treated me and the respect they gave me is something I can only aspire to do to the younger generation
0: and and with the younger generation and talking about skills and and what you need to do when going out through the surf what do you think are like the key three things that a an under 15 or youth Mm -hmm. competitor needs to really understand when they're going through the surf you know with my role now at Sorrento it's like there's a lot of um, understanding currents understanding banks understanding where the groups are understanding what what place to come in understanding where to position yourself around the cans wash riding all those type of things but is there any key things that you think that really helped you become a professional animal
1: absolutely for me the biggest one was on the ski and i think with male and female racing but at that time particularly for what the ski leg was so crucial until we did some really um, some competitions at Portsea, we did competitions at Coulomb where it was like six foot, like you've got to get skills on the ski, you've got to be able to stay on your ski, you've got to be able to make the judgment if a wave mm. is huge, do you take it, do you back off? And it's only that time in the surf that gives you the confidence to make those decisions because when you're heading out, to go left or right or to read that wave and which way, that's all on you mm. and you can only race as well as you train. So I I used to find myself at the end of training, I'd be going back out and I'd be, you know, as per advice from the coach, deliberately slewing and trying to pull it back around or I'd be taking the biggest set wave out there. And it's that um, you get into that automated state then where you're not overthinking it, you're just automatically doing things. I think um, technique can never be um, underestimated. It's absolutely huge, and particularly, um, you know, if you're doing more like a short course ski races, which I didn't go until later, preventing that fatigue. It's just such a huge one and holding a technique for the whole race. So um, those two things for me was what I worked on so much. My, my board paddling was, was pretty much there just from hours and hours of paddling around Coffs Harbour Jetty and doing all that kind of thing. Um, my swimming swimming was there, again, from the extreme time that I put into it. I didn't put the time into the ski. And I think it's a crucial one for for females. We sometimes don't, we, we don't develop strength as easily. We're not that strong in the upper body, relatively. Yeah. So to hold or sometimes a ski out in front of the wave can be trickier. The ski legs come so far for women. It's phenomenal what girls like Den McKenzie, Janet Smith, you know, they're doing these days. Obviously it was the bull, Elise Wood, McKenzie Duffy, there's a bunch of good go on, Hannah Scully. Um, what those girls are doing so it's come so far but for young girls those girls have gotten out there they've done the work in the flat and in the surf both equally as important
0: and with those skills that you were sort of describing as you're going along um you've spoken about your ski and coming down waves and maybe like for those young women as as they're learning and developing skis how crucial is it for those women to just get started? Because there is a lot of intimidation, I think, with the, the skis being 18 kilos. They're quite heavy. They're not that nice to carry on the beach. It's a bit windy. The kind of two-person carries, all those type of things. Um, what would you say to those young girls who are just starting out? Like, is it, is it stick at it? Is it um, just, just you get on it, you love it?
1: Oh, so absolutely. I mean, to get to the stage now where you see the women sort of hoisting the skis up on their shoulder, I can do that now. I started at 17, dragging it by the front strap down to Sawtell Beach, putting it down every 20 metres because I couldn't carry it. You don't start here. You build your way up. And we can always have that fear of judgement about, you know, I'm not going to be able to carry it properly. I'll get on and fall off. I'll slew. You've got to put that all out, out of your mind. You're always going to have your doubters out there but you will find the majority of people want to help and encourage and support you and that fear of getting laughed at or you know that sort of doubt that's there will eventually fade away because you absolutely love it to be good at something you've got to start somewhere Mm. and every single skill you learn in your life we're not good at it till we start i think it's um what is it ten thousand hours they say to the expert level well you've got to get that first hour in and You look at Roger Federer, when he started, obviously, super young. You look at Tiger Woods as super young as well. But when they started super young, the first ball that they hit or, you know, what it may be, the first swing would have been shocking. Um, there's athletes who were good later in life who didn't start, um, you know, until the age of 20 or whatever it might be, and they're experts in their field now. You've got to be prepared to sort of embarrass yourself a little bit. You've got to be prepared to look silly. And that's okay. It's absolutely fine. On the ski, I will still slew waves. I will still roll. I will lose my ski, all those sorts of things. But you're at the stage where you literally do not care because you know that to get good at something, you've got to make mistakes. Uh, It's very important to make mistakes. It's more important to learn from those mistakes. So if you do something in a race and you fall off, you make a poor decision. If you're at training and you lose your ski, you need to go back, talk with your coach what went wrong, and so yeah. when you're in that situation next time, you're going to do something differently. You need to put yourself into situations you've been in in a race, you need to start taking that big wave out the back. Because if you're in an Australian final and you're in around sixth place, and the opportunity is there to take that wave, if you've done that in training, that's going to be in your mind and your body, you're going to know how to do it. So get out there, be prepared to look silly be prepared to, it's not even being embarrassing, be prepared to make the mistakes required to get to that expert level.
0: And that's pretty, pretty critical, cool, I think, with everything that we do. It's talking about like being willing to fail to be able to succeed. Because if you aren't willing to fail, you're not going to be able to succeed in anything because mm. people don't just roll up and are successful. You've got to go through those, mm. those hours to get to that expert level. Mm. But just to do your apprenticeship, I remember talking to Ali Day um, in one of these podcasts and he, Sort of broke down like his apprenticeship when he went to Mulbaugh, and Matt Neville, like I said, sort of said the same type of thing. You've got to really do those hours to become mm-hmm. a better athlete, a better person. Uh, but the other point you mentioned, um, we we're talking about women's sport in general, mm-hmm. and I, it was International Women's Day the other day, and I think women's sport, especially in surf lifesaving, has come such a long way. That like we talked about you talk about, Car- about Carla Gilbert, like she was like trailblazing in like the towards the middle of the '90s, you know, doing the medalist Lee series, the uncle toby's like doing those type of of races and they only just started paddling skis like when she started when she was talking to us she she wasn't even allowed to compete she had to compete with the boys and she had to work her way up and how important do you think those influences were to allow yourself to have a career and how much better is it for i guess the women coming through now because over here in, in wa like youth women race has like probably a third more numbers than the youth men race, which is quite interesting to see. It's unbelievable. I feel so
1: lucky to be um, in the generation that I'm in. And obviously, you know, how many more years you have of racing on that elite level. It's, it's hard to tell. But, yet yeah, looking like at someone like Carla, she spoke at one of my sports women's breakfast, um, which was a fundraiser for the paddle. Uh, basically, she said she had to look up to the men because she she didn't really have any females who were doing the iron woman certainly doing it on the level that she was they didn't start paddling a ski until i think it was around 2000 they were paddling the shorter skis like the 16 foot 14 foot um what it might be um for more balance uh you look at now the girls are absolutely on the high performance ski if you if you went a shorter one you'd be sort of nowhere near it um You know, you look at the things that the girls are doing, like take Danny McKenzie and she is one of the most skilled athletes out there. You know, male, female, it doesn't really matter. This women's races are just as exciting to watch. Um, It's also taken, as well as these trailblazing women who I am so inspired by, and I can't even imagine what that was like, how hard it was to push these things through. But it's also taken a lot of uh, male support to get there as well. And I find that, you know, on the paddle that I'm doing, I'm surrounded by some incredible males and it's taken um, a lot of males, you know, like your Dean Gardens, like your Earl Evans, um, like yourself with you to encourage females in that space. And, um, you know, whether it be equal prize money, which, you know, with Sean Partners, with the Ocean Paddling Series, we've got equal prize money, male and female. So one of my very good friends, absolute idols as well, Haley Nixon, you know, past world surf ski champions, she always says it's a, self-fulfilling prophecy when you don't create equality and prize money and opportunity because then the women are less likely to sort of have a go you know Mm. and and there was a time for a time there you know someone like um even when I think Rachel Clark might have been winning the prize money wasn't the same so Mm. she was even on that equal level but because there weren't as many females she sort of suffered because of that So what they did was create the equal prize money. You look at the boom in women's surf ski paddling in the last couple of years, it's so tough to win a race. It's really tough to get on the podium with people like Denny McKenzie, Georgia Laird, Jordy Mercer, you've got to Hatton in there, Rachel Clark, Hayley Nixon. It's very, very tough. And I know that will continue to grow. You've got some phenomenal females coming through younger, um, but it's taken that shift and the equality to be there, the opportunity for that to grow. We are very, very lucky. We still have a ways to go in, in continuing to get the numbers forward. It's something I'm very passionate about. But we look not that far ago where women were told they couldn't do the calling out of gold yeah. because they wouldn't make it. You look at someone like Tian Smith who went and entered as a team and actually did the calling out of gold on her own and told them after and they think they threatened to suspend her or what it was, but she proved that women could do that. She, they, she proved that women could do that distance. And it's now at the stage where, you know, my sister Courtney won, had the last call and got a gold, and it's all equal in terms of the distance they do. So uh, women are amazing. Um, you know, they deserve the opportunity. We're lucky for the males and the females who have helped that to happen.
0: And I think that that's a, that's a really key point, um, seeing, like, the, uh, the, I guess, development, so fire saving, development in women's sports in general and development ocean racing. But the attitudes generally have swung. Like, I can't say that I was definitely pro um the equal prize money at the time because when you looked at the field you saw like 300 men and, and maybe 12 women and you're sort of like i don't really understand how this can work but as you see the time going along and you see the the more women participation and more women paddling in general you can see how it works but sometimes you can't have that size as, as a young 20 year old and you sort of see 10 years down the track you're like okay i can see it and i can see what it could be in 10 years it's hard when you throw something in the deep end Mm -hmm. and you're like, well, you have to do it now and it just doesn't work that way.
1: Absolutely. And it's a huge testament to someone like Earl Evans, you know, of and Partners and and, and, um, Yanda Morrison and Dean Diamond to do that. Mm. It's a big risk and most likely they got some pushback on that, but they were able to see uh, the bigger picture of it. And, um, you know, it's it's an unfortunate fact that they're, they're always most likely will be less female participation in the sport to a certain degree, you know, whether it's the um, influence of motherhood from a certain age, you know, uh, from your 30 onwards, whereas in the males we probably have men continuing on that elite level, you know, you look at someone like Hank McGregor or all those sorts, you know, well into their 40s. So I feel that could play a bit of influence in saying that people like Haley Nixon, Michelle Byrne, um, Nicole Burkett, They've come back after children and are absolutely killing it. It's a huge inspiration as well. Um, For different factors, we've got um, less female participation in general in different sports, but it doesn't mean that Aaron Antichmiss is any um, less of an athlete than your your male sort of counterpart like Carl Chalmers. So um, it is really cool that they're sort of recognised on that top end Mm. to get on that podium or win is so extremely difficult. It's extremely encouraging. And it said, we have seen the change. We are seeing the change every single day. And uh, you only have to look, as you said, at your, your local races with the girls in WA and see how hot that field is. And all the girls are looking over the shoulder at those young girls coming through.
0: Yeah, and I think it's exciting to see. And there's so much more opportunity and progression. And, and just, I think, um, yeah, ultimately, it's just more opportunities mm-hmm. which breed results, which is mm-hmm. awesome to see. Just go a little bit back into your island career, um, what do you think, we'll, we'll touch on this a little bit because we'll have to go into your, your panel in a second, but what do you think your, your best result was mm-hmm. um, and what's the results you look back most fondly of? Because you mm-hmm. spoke about you being at Norfolk and being an amazing, obviously an amazing taplands or relays, mm-hmm. ski relays at that Australian level, but then you would have had the Australian um, international experience and then you would have had obviously the professional series as well. Mm-hmm. So looking at all of that, like, can you tell us a few key moments in your career where you really achieved what you wanted?
1: Yeah. And it's such a funny one. I was having this conversation with someone like two, oh, might've been two weeks ago, that I had a lot of near misses, like near like close um, sort of wins in my career. So I was lucky enough to win. Um, In the under-19s, like something, you know, like your iron board swim on an Aussie level and, um, you know, then move up and you sort of go into that first year of opens where you kind of thrown in. I was lucky enough to, um, you know, win gold medals and the Australian titles in things like double skis, um, you know, swim teams, board recipes, board relays, all of that. But in terms of the individuals, the closest I went was a second in the Kellogg's, in around Kellogg's. Um, It was at uh, Coolum, I believe, that one. And all I ever wanted was to crack that race win in the Kellogg's. I got so many fourths. Um, So the second there, things like fifths and a lot of like near call, like close calls where you'd be coming in and, you know, you'd all run up the beach and just miss it. And I was saying, I think that that actually influenced like with this paddle, had I got some of those race wins or had sort of those results I don't know if I'd be doing this because a part of it was like, sometimes I, and I say this, I'm like, people say, what was your big race? When I'm like, I don't have the one moment. I mean, to get on the podium in the cooling out of gold and get third in, that was um, something I was super proud of, something I never thought I'd be able to do. But in terms of that one big race win, I can't say that I've actually got what you'd call the perfect race. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think that sort of for this helped to drive me as well. It's like, well, maybe I didn't get that in the short course. Maybe this crazy ultra thing is more where I'm at and it is so crazy which we'll get into it in a moment but yeah in terms of the achievements in that way it is definitely some of those team events that stick out to me in terms of the gold medals um but a lot of sort of yeah like third in Australian swim um you know a state gold medal in in swim or like a, a third in the iron it was a lot of a lot of silvers and a lot of bronzes and um yeah you know in in the open level and as we know it is so extremely hard to crack those race wins but uh the second is, is probably as close as I went. I did have um, probably a big race win, um, which was a couple of years ago when it was an exhibition race in Cronulla and it was extremely big surf and um, it was part of the Sally Fitzgibbons um, sort of uh, festival that they had. And the ironic thing was that the whole New rain field was there and I managed to have a race win. I thought, it's still bloody not a New rain So you can't even really claim that. So I'd say the closest I went is the second and it's probably taken me all this time to look back and say, I'm so proud of that. I'm mm. so proud of that second and so proud to have been in the series for nine years. So my biggest achievement would have been the consistency to actually be in a series for nine years. And yeah. Um, yeah, again, it's taken me all this time to actually realize that as an achievement in itself.
0: We, ultimately I've learned that there isn't really a perfect race. Mm-hmm. Like you only ever really get to like 95, 96% of your potential if you're lucky and, mm-hmm. Um, when you're when I'm racing, that's what I think about now. Like Most of the time, I just uh, just race 90%. Because mm. 90% of your best is probably going to be the best you can do on that day, given the factors and everything that are around you, especially when you're adding in surf and that type of thing. I wouldn't say that I probably reached my potential in surf by saving either. Mm. I look back at it and I had other opportunities when I probably was trying for the inter-game, but I wasn't. I was never mm. in it. I was always like fourth or mm. three, third or fourth outside of that mm. trial spots. And that was just so much pressure mm. all the time. But going into your series, you have to say that you're one of the most successful, one of the most successful in that sort of top 10 um, women all time probably you were in that series for such a long period. And I think that looking back at it, you will be happier as you go along, but it's hard when you don't have that win or that thing. But that, I find, also drives you forward. Mm-hmm. Like, I find I'm a bit silly, but when I don't get that result or I don't have that race win, or I don't do as well, or I make a mistake, I'm like, Oh, that's training for the next two months. Perfect. I'm mm-hmm. to get up every morning now and I tick those boxes. And then you get to that next race and you win. And i always found those failures or those not as successful times as you want um, really pushes you to drive you forward. And as you say that you're doing this paddle around Australia now, because mm-hmm. you still constantly want to prove yourself mm-hmm. and there's always just more and you want to find more and you want to find that, new threshold that you're getting to, which I'm sure you're finding each and every day at the, at the moment.
1: Absolutely. And it's so crazy because, yeah, that was in terms of the, the Ironman stuff. And I sort of eventually had two years off and I got quite sick and got um, glandular fever and then chronic fatigue. And then, you know, I basically ended up fin- focusing on my university studies. I came back and was like, my love just isn't there for Ironman racing, but yeah. I still love being fit and active and having like two years away from it. It makes you realize how much you love it. And that's what led me into the surf ski paddling too. Yeah. It was like, okay, I've that's never been a strength. Is that something that I could focus on? And I just had this idea to like focus on surf ski and just see where it went. It was like, this could be absolutely shocking. I'll probably come last. And I think I literally probably almost came last in the first couple of races. Yeah. But it goes back to that thing. Of if you focus on something and you put the work in, um, it's amazing where you can get. And I found that my love has absolutely switched into surf ski paddling because of the challenge of it. Um, and it was so crazy. I yeah, went from the iron series about nine years. It's all I'd ever known was feeling fatigued the whole time and just getting as fit as possible into surf ski paddling where it's five minutes, it's power, it's speed, it's technique. It's, you can get away with the poorer technique. Possibly that's, that's really controversial to say, but in the middle of an iron, like, Yes. Um, than a straight surf ski race yeah and so my love gravitated towards that and I don't think if I would had all of that like had those wins I don't think I'd be here today because I don't think I would have gone in surf ski paddling to focus on the next thing and, and yeah. focus on is that something where maybe that's what I'm more
0: suited to and yeah
1: I found that I love it I absolutely love it and lucky enough by the end of that season I was able to um you know get the the state title and third third Aussie which I never thought was something I'd ever be able to do so leading into that it's like I don't even think if I'd been super successful in Ironwoman I would have actually gravitated towards ski probably yeah. crazy to think
0: well it's just I find in life like every five years we make a change mm-hmm. and obviously you were in Ironwoman for a long period of time but you're obviously changing clubs changing where you would you training you're searching for new coaches searching to find to better yourself and I think someone like yourself will keep doing that as you're going mm. along. You'll find different sports and different things. I know myself, I've done like Ironman, I've, I've done swimming, I've done um, you know, stand-up paddling, ocean mm. ski racing, um, kayaking, you know, mm. like you're just finding that next way to better yourself and learning is as much part of the um, enjoyment as it is mm. being good at something. Mm. I find the learning process the best.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, for yourself now in fatherhood, like it's something you can pass on to your kids all the that- <laughs> the learnings from yourself i don't want to call them mistakes even in coaching as well Mm. and i think having that experience is so important to teach kids that you know kids can get really disappointed with the second or third and later you're going to look back and realize how good it is that all you can do on that day is give your absolute best yeah it's not good enough it's not good enough and even um you know races i've had on the surf ski like around that third and everything you can be so hard on yourself, but at the end of the day, if you leave it all out, then you put everything in training. That is all you can do. Yeah. And I agree with those shifts throughout life as well. And I think that's very important for your whole life. Stay fresh and stay passionate. And you talk to these 50, 60, 70-year-old females and males who are so inspiring for their love of the sport. They're traveling everywhere. They're doing different races and they're keeping it fresh. So um, it's really important to do
0: that too. Yeah, I, I just love that idea of um, just you're leaving everything out there I've said it thousands of times I think now as I say especially my kids down in Sorrento and, and people I coach online but it's always like just go there and do your best performance mm-hmm. on the day because mm-hmm. I know when I was younger I used to try and like there's this there's this saying you don't rise to the occasion you fall to your highest level mm-hmm. of preparation and it's something that I heard um like so I started 2020 I was reading a few different books it was a book by Chris Foss that negotiation and it was just really interesting because i was like yeah like i i used to try and manifest this like whole exciting new thing that i was going to be able to do on race day and i learned that i was like no well, if you don't do any training it doesn't happen on the day like you don't just magically become this superstar you you be either you're either there or you're not and you're racing is a reflection of your training
1: and we all have those days at training we're like can we just put on a cap and get on the line today because I feel whatever it is I haven't done anything special with food I've been at work all day but I am on today like there is something happening and we have those other days where we're like oh my goodness I've got a race this week and I feel some part I don't feel great I've traveled across the world blah 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 but or you can, as I said, on that day, you know, we say it's cliche control the controllables. That's all you can do. Mm. And you can't worry about it too much either, because if you do, it's you're going to get in your head, you know, you're going to be down yourself. So you get on that line. If you know that you've trained harder than the next person, then that's all you can do. And once you get going again you're in that automated state and that's what allows that automated state to flow to you don't want to get in your head too much it doesn't help anyone
0: no no you've really just got to stay controlled stay mm-hmm. calm like controlling your nerve controlling mm-hmm. just get yeah, controlling the control was not letting the the moment over you because i guess when i remember i used to go to aussies or something like that or a world championships you just be like whoa it's that world championships but then you're like no it's just another race it's another race against the same people i always race again so it's just, just go out and do it. And then if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't.
1: I think as well, you find that what works for you. You'll see some people sitting with music. You'll see some people um, talking to the next person on the line. I'm one of those people myself. And I'll be talking, the last thing I'll be talking about is a race. It's, yeah. you know, you're talking about, I don't know if it's like fashion or like traveling somewhere. And next thing you switch on, you know, when you get called to the water. So I think that's an important one for young kids as well is find what works for you and, if it's listening to your favourite songs, kind of before you go down there, it's just going to help control, and you're not going to see that over arousal as well in terms of that um, your little curve that you got it can be under aroused, over aroused. You want that sweet spot in the middle where you're ready to go, but not too much on the other side. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's just super important for every athlete, whether you're young or you're old, or you just start out in your, in your own sporting mm-hmm. career. I spoke a little bit about um, diet just then, mm-hmm. and. It's so obviously something is another passion of yours because you ended up doing, I think, a bachelor in, in dietetics, dietetics yeah. and you've been working in that field for a long period of time. How important has food been for you and where did the passion and the drive to I guess taking that into a career
1: absolutely so for me it started um yeah as a teenager and uh, we were lucky enough to go on a couple of sporting trips when I was younger and there was one specifically I think it was in Port Macquarie and we actually had a chef and dietitian come and speak to us and before then to me food was just Vegetables and yeah. meat, and that's what you kind of did. Like you ate what Mum put on the table. It wasn't, um, you know, recognizing macronutrients, micronutrients, what they do for the body. Um, you know how the body utilizes glucose as a primary energy source um, in general. So it was just amazing to hear from them and and, and make that connection. And um, yeah, I started. I, I knew that I wanted to do something um, either in health or the other option I had was. Just journalism because i absolutely love writing and i did my work experience as a journalist i thought i was headed that way but when push came to shove i realized that i wanted something that would help people i guess that where i could help people live a healthy life because my big passion is is helping people in life so yeah i went to griffith and i studied nutrition dietetics i met some amazing like-minded passionate people through there Um, we do our placement in the hospital system And I soon realized that wasn't what I wanted to go into. I didn't want to see people once, you know, give them some advice on um, how to manage their diabetes and then see you later. Mm. So the private practice was where it was at for me. And that means medical centers. So um, really fortunate to to get some work within the private system. It it takes a long time to to build up and build a really steady workload. Uh, I'm so lucky I've been working, um, you know, for the last uh, close to a decade in, different medical centers helping your average Joe's and James with things like your heart disease, diabetes, you know, ki- kidneys, liver, the food affects everything in the body. And in saying that, I see uh, a lot of athletes too and I absolutely love that. I love helping everyone from uh, track runners to swimmers to surf lifesavers and seeing those young the adolescent athletes like a light bulb moment in some of the things they've been doing that hinder their performance into switching that up. Like you're talking to uni kids are reading and we've all been there toast and, um, you know, oats basically is a staple. They've got minimal vegetables and explaining the relationship to a a female who's got low iron in, you know, increasing your vitamin C, which absorbs plant-based iron or explaining to someone who's constantly getting, um, you know, low blood sugars or, or muscles, even for muscle soreness, the, the protein aspect. That's really cool as well. And certainly, as we'll talk about the paddle, I had lots of plans and theories in that space, but sometimes it's the adaptability that's just as important too.
0: You touched on a little bit there, well, a lot actually, and it's been a sort of a common theme throughout the talk is you really sound like you really like helping people. And where does that come from? Is that just something that's intrinsic for you or have you got it from external sources? Have you seen somebody help someone before and you're like, oh, that's really what I want to do?
1: I think it's that sense of community I've always been exposed to. So, in a, even going back to a small club like Sortel to get our gear over to Western Australia for the Perth, um, for the Australian titles, we basically had people in the club drive a big truck over and we had everyone in the club chip in. Um, you know, I think coming from that small town, it is just that that's just what you do, that's the mentality help others. it's always been such an important part of my life and then to move to the gold coast and and live in an athlete house and again everyone's helping the others so it's that sense of role modeling um you know that that you take on you soak up as a child you don't even realize you're doing it uh that's what stuck with me you know same with my parents so to me helping people's always been second nature and I can't think of a better career than when you're assisting others and whether that's in coaching or whether it's in dietetics. Um, As you know, it's a sense of fulfillment that goes beyond anything selfish. So you can have an awesome session yourself. You're on top of the world. Your confidence high is high. But when you're coaching someone, and with Jenny McKenzie, we run Pushing Limits Coaching, and that's our our female um, coaching that we do. We'd love to expand it as well. It's all genders, but it's a sense of when someone gets on a ski and something clicks, whether it's a change in technique or simply being able to paddle and balance, that's where it's at for me. That's where the magic is. And uh, I absolutely love that sense of it. And Denny's the same as well. She's so passionate about it. And I think I'm inspired by her all the time as well in how phenomenal she is as an athlete, but as a person, my goodness, the absolute best.
0: It's, it is something that you definitely is ingrained in you. I know for me personally, I remember even like I think even when I was at North, If and watching some of the, the younger girls and, and younger fellows like come to ski training you're like mm-hmm. you're all doing things wrong but I don't feel like I'm in a place where I can tell you what to do mm-hmm. and then as you sort of go along you're like I have to tell you and I think that's something that I have as well Is I really do like to see people improve because there's something in that where it's, it's self like it's self-fulfilling as well but it's also fulfilling for the person that you're helping so it's something that as a coach, you, you've got to have. And I think that's how you become successful yeah. in, in your coaching realms. And if you, if you want to help people, you want to see them do better, they will.
1: I actually just had a flashback with you, you t- showing me a little bit on the ski as well at Northcliffe. I think you took me out the back and you must have seen something in my stroke most likely because it would have been terrible at the time. And I think it was on rotation and pulling through. So it's obviously something you always have there, which is yeah. really
0: cool. Yeah, I just, I used to always, I used it to sort of go, I wouldn't say anything and I started going, <laughs> Can I tell you something? <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: um, you can take it, or you don't have to take it, <laughs> but I, I want be to tell stubborn,
1: you. So I must have eventually clicked in and decided to listen.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's talk about ski paddling, and let's talk about your uh, shore partner's punters around Australia. Mm. Now, massive, massive sort of commitment. And I asked this question the other night, but why did you want to do it in the first place? Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely, and that is the number one question I get asked because it's like why would you voluntarily put yourself through, again, it's 12 to 14 hours of pain every day, It's um, Australia has one of the most rugged coastlines in the world, it's dangerous, I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat that. It started from a book. So three years ago, um, again, I was, I was. I absolutely love reading. I love reading autobiographies. And I run out of books to read. So I went to Broad Broadbeach Library on the Gold Coast and I had a look around and I came to the sports section. I'm always reading a paper from back to front, I'm obsessed. Um, and I picked up, I think it was three books. I think one might have been, um, ironically enough, I think it might have been say Shane Warne possibly. The second one might have been, I feel like it was boxing or so, something along those lines, something kind of random. And the third one was uh, Fearless, and it's the book written by Joe Glickman. He was a ski paddler and a a journalist um, who passed away a couple of years ago. He's a phenomenal writer. And it was on Freya Hoffmeister, and she's the German woman who paddled around in 2009. Uh, She actually did it anti-clockwise, and she uh, holds a record for that amount of time. She circumnavigated 10 months and 22 days. Uh, She beat the previous three males, um, just beat Paul Caffin by a couple of weeks. And I read that book and I could not get the idea out of my head. It was just so something i would never, ever considered was doing these, I guess, ultra endurance events on a ski. I'd only gotten on an ocean ski, say two years prior, or a year prior, big pardon, and done a little bit on that world circuit. And for six months, all of the doubts and negativity came in. I thought, that's silly. It's too expensive. You've worked so hard to get to where you are in your career. Um, you know, it's it's dangerous. You can't do this to your family. And six months, I couldn't get it out of my head. It kept coming back. And it was almost a sense of like, you have to do this. Mm. Because you are going to get to 80-something years old and you're going to look back. And I had this moment very clear in my mind whereas an 80-year-old woman sitting there saying to someone, I had this idea. I wondered what that could have been like. Yeah. And I thought, hell no, I'm not getting that. I'm going for this. And so it was then the process of getting the funding of it. It's, it's a huge project. And initially, I just had the idea of a tinny following me around the coastline. And when you look at Australia and you see the 200-kilometre stretch of cliffs in different sections, you realise that is not viable. It's unsafe. The, the people who'd done it prior were on big, heavy surf skis and they circumnavigated on their own camping on the beach, some with land support um, and boat support in certain sections. So it was more a case of probably the selfish reason of chasing a world record. I did know I wanted to do some good with it. I wanted to use the opportunity to do some good and looked at different charities and there was nothing I was more passionate about than mental health because during the pandemic, people were really struggling. People love, know middle class like my friends good jobs well-paid jobs stable relationships everything was falling apart for them um all of a sudden they had no job they were isolated they felt like they didn't have a purpose their anxiety and depression went through the roof our suicide rates went through the roof in young people particularly and it was Gotcha for Life. That was um, the one that came to me. We'd raised money through them at one of the Shore and Partners ocean paddling events. So I'd heard of them prior and looking into their, their mission of zero suicides and the importance they put on mateship and helping those around you, I could not go past that. So I always wanted to help people, but the initial reason was the world record
0: yeah there's so many things to unpack there but yeah i was i was actually fortunate to know joe quickman um like just from going to molokai i actually didn't know he wrote that book so i'll have to have to read that i was like very fortunate to go and meet joe and and hang out with him just before he passed and he's such a guy full of life so much energy and i'm sure that comes out in the book so i'm really looking forward to reading that. hopefully it's on audible so i can listen to it he's a
1: person absolutely who um you never hear all you hear about is such positive things Mm. and um you know there's been a couple of people who got in touch and said oh he he would have loved this that you're doing this this journey so um yeah it's amazing i would highly recommend
0: fearless okay i'll have to i'll have to look it up and um you obviously had those inspirations um to travel around australia but who were the key people that you had to speak to Mm. um i was fortunate to coach an, an irish runner he he wanted to run, um, he ran around Ireland and now you wanted. to, mm-hmm. then want to paddle around Ireland and I actually just got to read his book and I the title mm-hmm. right now. So, sorry, mate. Um, but when you're, when you were planning into mm-hmm. it, did you have to look into different training programs at the, or did you ask for advice on these different sections from different paddlers? Like who were the people who stepped up and really helped you learn about what you're actually going to do?
1: So firstly, the, the very first people I had to speak to my husband, Matt was the first one. And, yep. um, oh my goodness me like you can only imagine sort of you know you go to christy and you tell her that you're gonna do six months of this paddle around australia like there's just a look of like i don't even know it's a look of like blank sort of that you get of like processing and i think it took him like a couple of weeks to sort of respond it was like in his head what on earth yeah. have i got myself into um so eventually i think he realized that it was Something I was going to do anyway, so you may as well support it. Um, yeah. The next one, which you know, he's been absolutely like phenomenal in in the lengths that he's gone to 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 support this and what he's given up. And I mean, we we sold both of our cars leading into this um, to fund it. So um, you know that level of support is just incredible. Uh, my family. So you know when you, you tell your mom that you're going to be paddling out across the Great Australian by at 500k out to sea paddling up in North Queensland and Western Australia with crocodiles. It's not something your mum's absolutely stoked through the roof about. So they did have um, doubts and hesitation. And I think a lot of it probably wasn't voiced to me, but I could very clearly see. I think that to them, it was important to know the logistics of it to make them feel better. If I would have headed out on a sea kayak and just said, I'm going on my own, I'm navigating, they would have been a lot less on board. Um, My sisters as well. So they were really on board. In terms of getting the advice, it's such a tricky one. I mean, you look there, you look at the people prior who have done it. Um, I spoke to, um, you know, my, my coaches on the Gold Coast. I'd actually, um, I told Nick Crilly at Parrawa. Uh, that's where I was at the time. I'd actually, I met, I've made the shift to Mermaid Beach in the meantime. So Mike James and Kurt Gislingham there, they were so super supportive. They were unbelievable. So Leading in, they kept asking me about it. Um, We were talking about some of the strategies that we might use throughout. What would it look like with the breakdown um, of of the days of paddling? Because the people prior were on sea kayaks, they were paddling 30 to 50K a day. Mm. My aim is upwards of 100. So whilst I can gain learnings from them to some degree, I'm essentially doing it on a different level. On a high-performance level, on a high-performance ski Um, instead of the floating on a sea kayak maybe at say five kilometers an hour we're going 10k an hour a little bit quicker um, quicker on the downward runs than the down runs so yeah basically it was a matter of looking at this as an individual project for myself and trying not to take too much of this kind of into into my paddle while at the same time um, learning things like gloves which are going to be really important um and reading phrase book and going off of things like that um sun protection so out there you can have no vanity you absolutely have no vanity you have to be um in thermals constantly you have to have i've got like a balaclava hat you know you you're not out there impressing anyone yeah um so yet To be honest, it has been a process of absolutely winging it with myself and my team from the first day when we headed off on the 19th of December from Mermaid Beach. We were so naive. I even forgot to put a water bladder in my ski because we were distracted with media um, to the stage of duct taping up things on my ski um, to the point of eventually figuring out to tie the water bladder in. Um, You know, we've lost everything out there you can possibly imagine in the ocean, unfortunately. So... With something like this, you can't train 100k a day paddling. Um, you have to figure it out as you go. And my basically my theory was don't go in with niggles. So mm. don't overtrain leading in. The first couple of weeks is going to be the adaptation stage.
0: And how hard was it going from you spoke about when you just moved up to the Gold Coast and you're 17 or 18 and you're doing a 20km paddleback? Now you're doing 100 I think your longest one was 150 kilometers mm. recently. Um, how how different is that? Because I know when I first moved to the Gold Coast, I we do like 6K paddlebacks on the board. I was like, this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. This is like the furthest thing ever. Like, like, I don't understand how people even do this. And then you talk to someone like you who's, who's going to do 16,000 kilometres over six months. Um, how hard was that for you to get your head around it? Or were you really setting like, okay, well, I'm just doing this. So I'm just going to make it up as I go, as you spoke about. Or mm-hmm. was there a, a, like a, a strict learning process as you went along? It's
1: so interesting because... I, I went with B, option B. It was, I know what I want to do. There is no blueprint for this because basically no one's done it. Mm. Um, people have done it um, again at, at half, half the distance per day, um, half of that time frame with a lot more rest days. I'm so set on what I want to do. I know that I'm going to get it done. It's not going to be easy. It is going to be so, so hard but I cannot possibly specifically train for this leading in. Ironically enough, I was training with the surf club. I was doing 10 kilometer sessions, you know, um, training twice per day, a mix of swimming, gym. Uh, I stopped running because I actually wanted to gain weight leading into the paddle. And um, for me as a dietitian it was really difficult to have to go for foods very high in saturated fat and sugar and um You know, Matt was encouraging me to have things like croissants after, say, breakfast and lunches and um, to put on 13, 14 kilos um, from from my ideal race weight to actually lead in was an enormous part of the preparation. Yeah. Um, So it was actually the opposite of what you consider high-performance elite athlete, get lean, get really fit. It was like conserve whilst doing enough training but not too much to know that your body's about to go through physical hell. It was almost a bit of like a uh, being put in the good paddock for that time when you know you're about to go into being like a racehorse essentially. So um, yeah, leading into six months of preparation, basically with the surf club gaining weight over that time, very fortunate for that weight gain as well mm-hmm. um, to lead in. And I knew that I would do whatever it took in the first couple of weeks to get the K's done and, you know the very first day we did 73 i think the next one was 80 i could barely move um in the first also two three weeks i didn't really see any adaptation until after a month so it was my mind that got me through because as well as your muscles not being conditioned carrying 13 kilos the ski's not going to move as fast so the first three weeks were um i look back at the footage and i was in absolute hell but now I'm at the stage where I have adapted and I'm so glad that I pushed it as big K's early, but it was, it was so tough. It was super tough.
0: Oh, I can only imagine how it'd be because like doing, but having at say threshold when you're racing or just above threshold, when you're doing say races like Molokai or, or um, even the doctor or something like that, where it's an hour and a half plus, because you have mm. those different energy systems that you're using for say five minutes or mm. 10 seconds. Then you sort of, I find at 45 minutes, you sort of switch over to a different system an hour and a half, you switch over to a different system mm. and then, Really, two and a half hours, I think after that, everything sort of becomes pretty similar. Um, but I know when I'm training for Molokai, that, that's the hardest part to get to. It's like I can maintain this for two and a half hours, but when I get over two and a half, two and a half hours, that's when I start to break down. So sort I of start getting cramps and mm-hmm. you're sort of really switching over to like a low, uh, I guess, low GI, low carb sort yeah. of yeah. burn for as long as you possibly can. And your body starts switching. If you don't have that, that yeah. store, you start switching to burning your fats. Mm-hmm. And that's why you were putting on weights. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're backing up day after day, you're going through something like 12,000 calories, I think you said the other day, how are you fueling yourself each and every day to get the most out of that?
1: And it's such an interesting one because as a dietitian, I had a plan. I had a specific plan on what I'd be eating, you know, the carbohydrates you'd need in that time and the fats and, um, you know, certainly your fats are more energy dense, um, you know, so nine calories per gram as, as opposed to four calories per grams with your protein and carbs, um, the timing of those. So, you know, straight afterwards, getting your carb and your protein in that muscle recovery. The seasickness I've experienced over this trip is so much worse than I'd ever expect. Um, I've tried to take the tablets, they, they haven't been affected. Uh, that's the other part leading in. I've got scripts done from the doctor for everything we could possibly think of that might come along the way, um, from infections to um, you know the cold and that kind of thing. Um, the biggest problem has been seasickness because... On a day where you've paddled 100K and you know that you need protein, you know that you need um, as many veggies as you can get in to support the immune system, but you are throwing up every half an hour and the only thing that stays down is ice cream and Milo, that is where I've had to put the perfectionist in me to the side and eat whatever I can. So there's days where I've burnt uh, 12,000 calories for the carbon plus and all I can eat is a couple of bowls of ice cream in that time and you can physically feel the weight coming off you it's crazy stuff um I've had to just try and catch up in the lay days so basically when we're out there paddling we often don't get to anchor of an evening if we are so far out to sea and we're taking the direct line across that means the boat is rocking the whole time Mm. when you're having dinner later when you're trying to stretch you know the whole way through the evening is rocking and rocking you do not get relief and that's the part one of the parts that i've had to find that resilience and toughness to be, it is what it is. And I've had dinner, someone cooks a beautiful meal, the crew did rotations, I'll be I'll get fed a beautiful stir fry with all of the veggies and protein. And I'm out in the back deck, throwing it up half an hour later. And the crew are there enjoying it, having a lovely meal. It can be disheartening. Um, There's a sense where it's dehumanizing. Often I don't get to eat with people as well because I'm finishing at 11, 12 at night in the water. Um, I'll come on, I'll try to eat a a cold meal that's left, throw it up, and then I'm turning to ice cream, I'm turning to smoothies, I'm turning to cereal and even sweet biscuits. So for three days, I held nothing in my stomach and still had to paddle 100K plus plus a day we do the best we can but there's days where it looks so less than ideal and as a dietitian, that's been so hard
0: yeah i can imagine just eating ice cream and just like i don't know i don't, I don't even know how you eat ice cream on boats i feel like dairy always makes me feel more queasy on a boat but it must get to the point because i definitely don't enjoy being on boats that much like sometimes i'm awesome if i'm like well rested i get mm. on and maybe i've had some quills something like that mm. i can i can do a full day but I remember going up to to Exmouth actually with um, Reese Baker and we went out in his boat. I had like three hours sleep. I did the last minute trip. We like paddled all morning and I went straight out in his boat we went spearing and I was like, nah, no good. But just doing back to back to back days being seasick, how do you, has your body adapted to that?
1: It has and it hasn't. I'd say mentally I've adapted, which has really helped because I'm a, Instead of getting distressed when it happens, I'm able to stay really relaxed. And it is what it is. I know the coping strategies for it now. So basically at the start, the key thing with seasickness is do not go down into your cabin or inside the boat. And my cabin's towards the front of the boat, which means it's the most unsteady place on the boat. So it's literally down there doing this. Out the back of the boat is the most stable part of a catamaran. It's a multi-hole catamaran. So you want to be out near the helm. So that's where they drive the boat. I spent... Two of those days, laying on the ground out the back, desperately trying not to vomit. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've learned the strategies. Everyone says do not go inside as soon as you start feeling queasy. So you avoid the inside. My lovely crew have been grabbing things for me to make uh, get change. The other key thing is don't try to eat something you know you won't keep down or have an aversion to. So on the day days I'm seasickness, seasick, I know the fresh veggies are a no-go. For whatever reason, I throw them up. Yeah, That's when I'm doing a smoothie with your chia seeds and your proteins and, um, you know, getting the greens powder in there. So we've learnt the strategies for it. I think I physically haven't adapted, but we've learned the coping strategies for seasickness.
0: And, and talk us through um, your boat setup, um, the crew that's on the water. Um, what is everyone's roles? How are you like splitting things up, are they just like they're having a good time most of the time, or are they like on your on doing your social media? Are they yeah. helping cook for you? Obviously keeping the boat maintained, choosing the weather patterns, all those type of things. Absolutely. Like who's on the boat? And and then obviously who's on the who's on the land as well.
1: Yeah. It's so funny we say that people really have to be a hybrid because Uh, For example, on the boat, so we've got our skipper. He leads the sailing crew. They're three marine biology students, so they do the sailing of the boat. But in saying that, um, I've got two guys on board, Jamie and Blake. They're our videographers they've also had to learn to sail because across the bike, there was a 24 hour watch system and they had to be brought into that process. So they're up there, they're up at the helm, you know, they're doing the sails. It's so cool to see. Um, but another part of their job is looking after me. So they're the ones when I can't get up physically, they were spoon feeding me that ice cream. They would dress me in those thermals. Um, you know, they were making sure everything was on the scheme needed. So They have to sort of think in a few different ways, which is really, really tough at times. They're doing a phenomenal job. In terms of the land crew, uh, we've got Matt, my husband. We've got um, Ben, our other uh, land crew support. And again, they're they're on land crew, but they're also, um, as well as driving around, organizing you know the exemption to get into WA they're uh, organizing um, you know if if the boat needs um, groceries if the boat needs maintenance and repair so they're on land working so so hard day in day out to get that done Uh, so everyone has just really stepped up it's been really uh, inspiring and what's really inspiring as well is the positive attitude that they bring because there's days where it's it's so hard and getting off the water. If you can um, come and see a smile, it's, it just absolutely makes your day. So um, everyone's thinking of putting their different caps on on a, on a daily basis and I just have to paddle. They do the thinking for me. So I actually feel really, really lucky in that regard.
0: And obviously those, those crew on land and sea are just instrumental to what you're being able to do because it sounds like if you're doing 12, to 14 days on the water you're not gonna have a lot of time to think for yourself really like you just it's gonna be monotonous like how are you getting through mentally yourself but like it's obviously great to have people on the boat great to have um uh, matt obviously on the land organizing things for you but you're sort of becoming very dependent on your team but also you just you're just a kind of a machine at the moment you just have to get out and do your job and i know there's obviously the greater purpose yeah. of um gotcha for life and and you really want to do this record and you've got that intrinsic ability to be able to push yourself all the time but it's just so it's just so much yeah like everyone's gonna do a lot but you've got to do all the power like nobody can just go i'm gonna jump on and do 100k for you today you just do 30 like you've got to do it all yourself and you've still got heaps to go so how are you dealing with that? Is it just step by step? Or, and how are you just processing the whole thing as you go?
1: Yeah. And I mean, I'm constantly, it's so funny you say that. I'm constantly um, you know, basically deloading on, on different members of the crew. I, I'm letting them know like um how I'm feeling. I think that's really, really important as well. I trust them so much. I like you know, the insight I'm not feeling great that day. But it's so interesting you made that point that. No one else can do the, my job. So it was a time where it was really tricky because I almost felt like part of the team, but then you also isolated for that period of the day. So you think of something to say, like a conversation, you're like, oh, like, you know, I can't exactly just have that conversation or you're yelling over the engines at the back of the boat, but like, it's not quite the same. There was something my first um, ski coach said to me, Steve Coultry came and paddled in Sydney. And he said, don't expect others to feel how you're feeling or know how you're feeling, and that's okay because they are so empathetic, they they get it, they they understand, but that feeling of pain that's that's mine to carry, that's mm-hmm. my burden to carry because I put myself in this situation. I say every day it's self-inflicted. Yeah. So on yeah, a absolutely. day where I am absolutely suffering. That's all that's on me. And I know I look up at that boat and I see how hard they are working. And I'm so inspired by that and the land crew as well that I'm like, well, this is my job. Like, this is what I have to get done. And if I don't do this, that whole project, all of those people suffer too. Yeah. So what I say to people is every single day, I give myself, that's my job. So 120 K today, that's next to safe Anchorage. There's no... Stopping at 30k, that's not an option. It's like going to work and doing half of your, yeah, you know, getting through half of the files or doing sort of a third of the task. Like that's just not good enough. So I've had to put that standard on myself within reason, absolutely. You know, if it was medical or something serious, obviously you're stopping. And I had a situation the other day and it was the first time I'd done less than the planned amount. We had to go 80k. And my fingers have been the biggest drama, which is crazy. They almost feel like I've got arthritis and they're down a bit after some rest. But these swell up to what feels like a third of the, I'm sorry, three times the size. Yeah. And I had to call it that morning and say, I can't do the full 80. Yeah. And we had to make plans around that. And it was really tricky to make plans around that because it wasn't in a good place logistically. So that was very mentally hard for me to admit that I had to go less. This
0: when you came in at Preston Beach,
1: absolutely, yeah, and yeah, yeah. The next day we came in at Preston, which was oh. beyond schedule. We had to basically sail to Fremantle, so we were coming from, twenty k sail to Fremantle, and then basically organize to get back to that spot. And it was just a, a huge process. We were in the the middle of nowhere. Um, then we came in at Preston Beach the next day to the most wonderful community support we got in in the dark on the jet ski and Matt had put out a call to to Facebook for help because we'd run out of fuel um the car was bogged it was all going on so uh, basically the beautiful community of Preston Beach helped us but yeah that's the mentality that I have each day it's a job to get done in saying that I talk about the difficulties and the challenges of it's almost like um isolation or sort of going into a struggling or suffering on your own solitary confinement is sort of a word but basically every day i have moments where i'm like i am so lucky to be doing this there are a pot of dolphins that come up there's birds that fly over my head like albatross the most beautiful creature and i'm like this is so this is i'm so grateful i have to put my mind in that sense state of gratitude yeah and that's when you get into that flow state. You get into a state, you can be paddling for like five hours and it's just a state of bliss. You, you you forget what you're doing. You're not thinking about a world record. You're thinking about the greater purpose of the project often, but it's the flow state that you reach and that's how you get the big Ks done. And it hasn't hit me until probably like a month and a half in or just recently to actually get in that state. And I'll be paddling like, I've just hit 80k and I haven't even thought about things and from like 40k to the last 40k I've been here but my mind's been so in such a wonderful place of like almost like an elevated sort of feeling um you're just catching runs and and you're in such a state of contentment and I've never ever had that in training or anything prior to this
0: yeah so it's like on happy Gilmore when he mm. goes to his happy place mm, that's just right. finding that that Absolutely. place yeah, yeah that's awesome and When you're you're out on the water, are you listening to to music? Are you listening to podcasts or books or something like that?
1: Yeah, I absolutely. Prior, I was like, I'm going to smash you so many podcasts. I'll be like, my IQ is just going to, you know, get sore. I found that they're too slow. They're too, um, what would be the word where it's like broken up, sort of their disjointed type thing to get in that sort of flow state for that long, yeah, it's the music. That's where it's at. The music is where it's at. And I started off with some really, like, heavy, hardcore rap music, like, constantly. (laughs) And the boys were like, you can't listen to that all day, every day. Like, that just puts your mind in this, like, frantic. And so they gave me some more mellow music to listen to, you know, some Australian artists. There's a bit of, like, techno in there. There's some house stuff in there too that's where it's at because that kind of allows you just to bring it down. Yeah. And you can listen to, yeah, like go through a hundred songs and you've not even, again, you're in that flow state. The music for me is absolutely essential. There are a couple of days where I lost my speaker and it was before we got the waterproof headphones and I was just lost out there. I started overthinking too much. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, so a lot of people paddle with music. Sometimes we don't paddle long enough in our training to fully appreciate the 14 hours a day, if you have music in, it's a sound of company and it's a sound of like reassurance. And I find that you can work through song by song. So, when an Eminem song comes, you kind of up your rating, you're up a little bit.
0: Yeah. Um, but next thing, like
1: a oh Lord, like more mellow song comes on, you're back down. So, that's really cool as well.
0: Yeah, it's quite cool hearing because I know when I start doing longer paddles, I actually start listening to books because mm. I can't, I, I'm a bit too ADD, I think, myself. <laughs> I'm not, I don't have AD, so not, I'm not trying to say that. But um, when I read, I can't stay focused. I, I, I start reading and i like, I'll think of something else and I'll move in places. But one point when I'm paddling and you're sort of touching on a lot is when you're paddling, that's all you can do. But to have something there and you're talking about music as company and for me, the, the books are always company and because they have a start and a finish, you can sort of, you don't really comprehend everything. Like when you go four-hour paddles or something like that, for me, i can't comprehend everything but i know that i'm taking in some information mm. so i feel like at least my brain's still ticking over in some respect when i'm just doing this monotonous paddle and four hours a mm. difference a bit difference to 12 hours a day for six months but it's it's something that i can appreciate with what you're talking about
1: oh four hours is a massive extended amount of time i mean it's the time of the, the marathon you know mm-hmm. and that's a huge achievement um in general it Your mind, as you said, when it's doing one thing, that's what it'll focus on. So if you are in pain, all you're going to think about, I find in the silence is my shoulders are gone, my Mm -hmm. back. And you start like working through the areas of pain on your body, like this is horrible. But you put the music in and you're thinking, and then go through that process of like writing down a rap, like, is it like a quick process or whatever? And I'm thinking about that for like the whole song. I'm not thinking about the pain in my lower back. So, or, you know, the lyrics of the song and it kind of takes you to a certain place. So your mind can only really think about one thing at that particular time. It will go to different things. But, um you know, we're we're, we're problem solvers. We're as humans, we're problem solvers. So um, we need to almost give ourselves those other problems to solve so that's not just trying to solve the pain in the body yeah. because it will keep coming back to that so you listen to some lyrics and you're starting to think about those it almost gives your brain that other other focus
0: and like you have spoken a little bit about injuries your back your shoulder um your hands how have you managed those injuries as you've gone along because it's not easy like when i get injured i just don't train for a couple of days but you don't really have that option so yeah. how are you managing that and how are you like, I guess, deloading your body and recovering it when you're having those few days off?
1: Totally. It's such a hard one. And from the start, like initially this like, I don't I don't need any days off. And you realize physically and mentally you do. And it's sort of like, it works out to be like one day a week or so. Um, by the end of say like a seven day stint of paddling, again, 100K plus days, I'm absolutely cooked. My body is just It's gone. I have no energy. Again, the fingers, the swelling is beyond anything. The lower back, I can barely stand up straight. Um, My shoulders are so, so sore. That process has gotten better from the start. Yeah. But basically, that one day off is enough mentally and physically to reset. It's enough just to get the inflammation down enough. You're still gonna be sore the next day. all you're doing is aiming towards that day off when you're paddling and if we get told it's on an island it's like a paradise in your mind and that's what you work towards so the balance is so important if you did this straight with no breaks Mm. mentally I think you'd be in a much worse state Um, in terms of logically or practically on the boat um, we do cupping and we do massage after so that's after every single paddle that day um, you know electrolytes rehydration because hydration is super important as well for your body to function effectively we've basically been winging it we are trying um, matt's got a background in sports science so he knows a lot about the body and about injuries so he's always thinking of different things like a heating gel i put on every single day athletes gel Is the best product I've ever used in that space. We put it on before each paddle. It's still warming up hours later.
0: Mm.
1: It keeps your muscles warm and decreases risk of injury. Uh, So there's all that sort of thing. I'm actually really touched wood, surprised I haven't picked up a major injury yet, but I think I can also attribute that to being relaxed and staying in that nice sort of zone of not pushing yourself too hard, you've got to hold pretty good pace. Like it's around, again, that 10K an hour most of the time, but you're not pushing it. When it's tempting mm. to go flat out, you've got to actually hold back from that to some degree. It's not a race pace. And it's taken me all this time to realise that because at the start, I was trying to get that thing done as quick as possible. Yeah.
0: yeah, it must be so difficult to go from like a racing mindset to somebody who wants to be the best, who wants to go as hard as they can for that period of time when you're going... Well, actually now i've got to look at it i'm doing a sixteen thousand kilometer race yeah and how how can i get through that race yeah. i might try and be able to build at the back end but the, to get through that first stage and get through that all like the journey that you've got to go you've still got two thirds to go mm-hmm. yeah it must be hard mentally to switch to that i guess not leisure paddling because you're still doing it for a reason but mm-hmm. like just a, a slower paddling yeah. pace like i know you've had to So let's talk a little bit about your equipment. I know you've had had a few damages to your equipment. You've had to change your your paddle feather. You've had to switch out a few different things, like wearing different clothes that you probably would never wear. Can you walk us through how that's all changed for you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, on that last point you said, I just remembered someone told me a couple of weeks ago, they said, this isn't Bonnie Hancock, the professional athlete. This is Bonnie Hancock paddling around Australia. And I said, that's right, hey take mm. the pressure off the yeah. cruise the cruising pace. Yeah. So basically the big lesson I've learned over two and a half months is the quality of your equipment is everything. Mm. And in paddling this far, you can't get away with subpar things. You can't get away with um, thermals that aren't the best in the business and um, walking through basically East coast down, I was in my Ohana swimmers. I just did a full piece swimmers. I had a back brace on for my lower back. It's been an absolute saviour. I paddled with it every single day, literally from the chemist the ones the old people wear and velcro up it holds your posture it holds you straight and it protects your lower back it's incredible and everyone anyone who does have lower back issues i would actually recommend giving that a little bit of try you obviously want to strengthen your core and your back that it can be a bit of a savior um just temporarily so basically ohana harness swimwear they don't rash they don't you know like other swimmers do they're so important from about really Sydney and down that's when I put the thermals on because the water dropped now we were out far enough that we were in the East Australian current so the same current in Finding Nemo we were at 20k at sea so that current was pushing us down the coast it was cold out there yeah so I actually popped the Vicobi thermals on and Pat's been so amazing Pat and Adrian there in asking me what do I need what can we try you know what's going to work so basically, I got some custom rashies done and the thermals wrist to ankle, even some days from the Victoria, New South Wales border that I started popping on their steamer as well. So that was really important, the paddling steamer. And I mean, I've I've had those on the whole way down across the Great Australian by. I'll come out of the water every 50K or so and do a change. Yeah. So at this stage, it's usually I've gotten it to from three changes a day to one, which is cool. Oh, That's wow. just physiological okay. adaptation. Yeah. I used to have to stop every 20 or 30K. Now it's more like 50, 60 or 70, I'll stop. Yeah. If it's a big day like 130, I'll stop at around 70K. I like to front end the days. I like to do more in the start of the day. And again, it's a mental thing. I like to have less at the end. So I'll like, I call it like rewarding myself. So if I've got 120K day, I'll push 70 or 80K first. And then the best feeling is getting back in the water and 40K feels short. It's it's a crazy mindset, but 40K feels short by the end of that. Um, So basically I'm changing. I've got Ohana, I've got my Vicovion. In terms of my paddle, now this was the second week in. Um, Oscar Chilupsky messaged me and he said, Bonnie, change your paddles on a 60 feather, um, you know, right? And I paddle a 208 usually. Yeah. He said, you need to go to a zero feather. And so he said, he's done a couple of weeks, like, you know, your 250Ks. And I said, oh, the blisters. And he said the blisters will start first and then the wrist pain will come. Mm. And the craziest thing was I was already getting a bit of wrist pain. Yeah. Obviously that feather is more rotation. It's a better for a high performance stroke. As soon as I switched it to a zero, you're more going back to cruising. It was the best thing i could have done for this yeah. paddle. i've had no wrist pain since um Hayley nixon said as well it would be more stable so if you do get really fatigued and you go to fall out it's a more stable uh angle yeah that's been a savior the bennett paddles i'm on my second paddle i've paddled 5000k and i've only taken two paddles to do that the first one's in absolute pristine condition too it's crazy Um, I paddle a Nordic Nitro, so that's the high-end Nordic ski. It's nine kilo. We do actually carry a couple of skis on the boat. We've got the Squall is the intermediate and the Plastic is the heavy 30 kilo. Initially, we packed the Plastic for what we're heading into soon, which is the crocodile areas. If things get a bit sketchy, I might have to jump on that ski. Um, What's been the best about that ski is members of the crew have jumped in and, and paddled with me across the Great Australian Bight, everyone on the, the boat jumped in and paddled in the Bight. So there were people who had never been on a ski, jumping yeah. in 500k out to sea, which was an adrenaline rush for them. Uh, they're my key themes that I attribute, um, yeah, you know, the success of paddling here too. Um, and again, I mentioned I mentioned the Athletes Gel and the Oakley Sunnies as well. I can't cannot go past them. And when you're on the water for 12, 14 hours a day, You've got to have sunglasses on and you've got to have really good sunnies. So, yeah, I'll never go away from Oakley's. I think, again, they're just amazing.
0: So you, you spoke about um, Oscar Cholopsky, messaging you, Haley Nixon, mm-hmm. and, and obviously you're having a lot of messages, a lot of good exposure through your social media on mm-hmm. Instagram, but at Bonnie Hancock, if you want to follow along. How important are those messages of support? And have people been overwhelmingly supportive of you and, and of your journey?
1: I've been blown away. I mean, from week one, um, I guess you could say the community that we built around the Sean Partners Paddle of Oz is, has been amazing and, and people of all different ages and all different backgrounds, you know. Um, I have a lot of friends within the surface saving community and ocean ski paddling community and uh, they've all jumped on board. But it's, it's just your... Um, average joe and average jane that will send you a message and say um you know i I lost someone to suicide thank you so much for for what you're doing Or, or someone who might be um say you know i've i've just picked up a surf ski for the first time in 10 years i saw your story and that kind of inspired me to do that or or whatever it might be and they might start with one kilometer that they've done that to me is one of the absolute best parts and I am so lucky with the team around me, the filming that they're doing and, and, and capturing this, because it's very hard sometimes to explain an experience, you know, of 100 dolphins coming past your ski or how close an albatross flies to your head or falling out, you know, of over nighttime. But the video stuff is, is yeah, it's, it's really cool for me to look back on as well, to be honest. And I think people are really taking to that social media side of it and um yes it's it's really cool we've we've um got a good community around it
0: yeah oh i've seen even here in perth and when you were talking about coming people kept messaging me going can can we sort of paddle with bonnie can we find Mm -hmm. out when she's coming over let's do the talk and Mm -hmm. that type of thing so that's just such a great paddling community i think no matter where you go and i've learned that from my different travels in in, in, these different paddle sports in general it's like Mm -hmm. a lot of like minded people who just really enjoy paddling and are willing to help out. So, yeah. um, we're very lucky to be part of this community. But with the, the media and, and, and that type of thing, how are you managing that as well? Because getting off the water from a lot of paddling, you probably don't want to be staring at your phone for a few hours and, and sort of messaging people back. If, mm-hmm. Is your team taking that over mostly? And how are you able to digest sometimes what's actually coming and what's actually happening? Not at all, not at
1: all. When you're, um, I've got um, basically for four um, men around me doing. social media handling the pr basically setting up the interviews which means i don't have to think for myself i can focus on the paddling um, in saying that it's been really cool recently to have the opportunity to do some of that um you know i do the captions basically so they capture the um the video and the footage and i'll, I'll write the captions so that's really cool i can sum it up um, you know from from my own experience um, and or otherwise it's quite funny I'll be dictating to them so as I'm paddling I'm calling out of the engine or I'm calling out of the jet ski and we kind of do it that way so we get it done um but I'm so lucky that the team is everything and you know again if you did this panel on your own I don't think it would be as fulfilling in yourself because when you when you like and love sharing and helping and when you're You have this um, support crew around you and you see the joy on their faces when they get to experience the sunset out there, but also how hard they're working. Um, It's a really, really cool um, opportunity uh, to have that team. And I just struck gold. I'm so lucky with the people around me. So it is all them. I'm just doing the paddling and um, they're they're doing a wonderful,
0: wonderful job. That's an interesting point. How did you convince a team of, uh, I think it's about eight, Mm. to come with you for six months
1: that they're just absolutely i'm still i'm still blown away by it to be honest i mean it's six months of their life that that they're giving up and they took a risk i mean they could have taken a risk on this giving up their jobs i paddle two days in and say no um, i'm done i can't go any further um but they took the risk on the project they're all very passionate about the mission of the project and just in supporting gotcha for life as well and that's a huge huge driving factor uh, for a lot of them um they're people who love nature they love the outdoors and i think six months of getting to explore australia as well as um working towards our greater purpose i mean you're combining two of those things that they love so um Again, really, really fortunate, and it was just through some um, connections that we had on the Gold Coast in terms of the sailing crew. Um, that was through a contact of a contact to find our skipper, and then he basically asked some of the marine biology students he'd um, taken on the boat uh, to come as well, and they were really keen there in the gap years from uni. Okay. So it just worked out really well, and the pieces of the puzzle, puzzle sliding into place we couldn't do it without one less of those people it wouldn't work so mm. we've got just the right amount and uh every single day i think I, i'm so lucky so
0: lucky you would have been able to see some incredible places and i can see that appeal of the whole thing so where where are like the few places that you've had your best experiences and you spoke about like those joyous moments when you're having you're out and paddling and up your sunset might be a dolphin but is there any ones that really stand out for you
1: there's a couple that stand out, and um, certainly when we first saw the cliff faces along with Jerk's Bay, that was really, really special because it was like a feeling like, all oh, right, we're leaving sort of that New South Wales kind of almost that comfort zone now where you can anchor in pretty much every night. You've got civilization. That was the first kind of turning point heading down towards Victoria. South Australia is one of the most beautiful places. I would recommend anyone to experience it. It's not often promoted, and I think that's because how gorgeous the locals know they've got gold there. We actually were fortunate enough to pretty much island hop in South Australia, so we didn't really come to shore. We were island hopping um, for a fair bit of that, and there were times where uh, Wedge Island, for example, in South Australia, they've got caves we went in i was paddling in these caves you know with the torch on my head and the gopro and um, with jamie one of the guys on our boat who, who loves the ocean so that was very cool and then i mean you only have to look at when we crossed the great australian by 500 kilometers out at sea 14 days of basically living on that boat feeling less than human um feeling uh You know, the whole time, that trepidation, are we going to make it? If someone falls and hits their head, we're two to three days away from it, we could die out here. Like it was, there's no other boats. You see no boats. You've got no radio contact with other boats. You've got no marine life. It's just, you go into this crazy whirlwind. I mean, I'm still processing it. It was very quite, I'd say traumatizing for me, that two weeks. Um, When we finished on the last day, we're paddling and I get told that the island's going to appear at any moment door island is on the other side of the bike and it was this moment and just the sun was on the perfect angle and it was like I paddled and all of a sudden the island just appeared and that moment everyone on the boat like was like what like this is crazy we haven't seen land for two weeks and paddling towards that and into that island. Um, I had two of the girls actually jump off the boat and paddling with me as well. We got there at night time and the feeling of sand under my feet. And I will never again take for granted being in a still environment with land under your feet. You, you basically, it's very difficult to walk after two weeks. on a boat. Yeah, you have sea legs completely. So we almost fell over walking and it took us the next really week or so to get the land legs back. But the feeling of falling on, onto the beach um, after that time is something I'll never forget. And we spent the next day on the island. So that's definitely one that comes to mind as well.
0: Yeah, it must be incredible, just those different moments. I'm sure <laughs> you would have been like, uh, what was that movie Cast Away? Tom <laughs> Hanks and seeing the boat for the first <laughs> time. For you, it was seeing, man, just being able to just, just relax. I remember I did a, 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 a short boat ride. And we spoke about it the other day, but it's on the camera. It was four hours. I got really seasick. And I remember actually getting onto the jetty and i just laid down i was like oh it's amazing i feel That's, good again but, absolutely yeah um like I, I can do this one this uh, is okay and it must be like that for you
1: one of the young boys Shay, on the boat actually tried to uh light a fire and we had plans a big bonfire but he couldn't get it going because it was a bit too wet or yeah. it wasn't there and um yeah we were all just in that we were talking about it for days leading in like you know just to step on land so um i wouldn't recommend two weeks on a boat but uh if you've got across the great australian bite then you got to do what well, you got to do.
0: and going into that section because you said i think it cuts cut off a month for you just by going mm-hmm. straight across how you spoke a little bit about how daunting it was but it must have been yeah traumatic as you said because mm-hmm. i know when doing paddlebacks off say burley or coming across from even rotness, like i've dropped out of the boat at the back of rotness and, and fall back from like 10k's out mm-hmm. that's 10k's out you were say 500k's out thousand k's yeah. out something like that in few yeah. thousand metres of water as well. So you're, you're very isolated. Even though you're with people, you're still like, well, something goes wrong. Where kind of stuff do you?
1: Absolutely. It was, yeah, 3K deep or 3.2K deep at mm. one stage. And uh, I was thinking about that. I was from a house at Mermaid, how far along Hedges Avenue that is. Um, it's so terrifying to think. And it's really strange. The water almost goes. It's like a black. It's so deep. It's like black under there. The crazy thing is, once you get from about, I find land disappears, and this is going to be totally wrong, somewhere between like 50, 60, 70 K, it seems to me, depending on the height of the land as well. Anything from that time of land disappearing almost feels similar to however long it is. Obviously, it gets, the thing is, it gets colder and it gets darker. But when you can't see land, it's the strangest sense because there's been times I get off the boat after my break and they say, all right, I'll get going and I'll go to paddle and I paddle off in the opposite direction. So I'll paddle opposite to where I'm supposed to be because the boat will just be sort of floating there. It marks in the charts plot of where I stopped. It takes me back to that same spot. So I, I'm the one paddling away first, and I will go completely, and they think it's hilarious. They call, they're like, "You're <laughs> going back the other way, like you're literally going back to where you came yeah, from."
0: Yeah, of course, your sense of direction would just be a mess. It's a
1: disorienting, t- disorienting thing. You, you literally don't know, and you see how people get lost at sea, surviving that with with no way of getting anywhere other than the current. Yeah it becomes it's sort of messes with your head so basically the boat gets on track then and tells me where to go but I'm so glad not to be navigating myself but yeah out there it's a strange sense of like acceptance like you have to go into a very calm state Mm. um some of the swells were three to five meters big so I'm watching these swells come over and almost tip like a multi-hole catamaran and I know I'm about to cop that swell yeah Uh, you know the risk that you're putting yourself with marine life out there. And yeah. if something does happen, um, there are a couple of incidents on the boat. So uh, the skipper hit his head quite badly and, um, we were worried about concussion, which we're still not quite sure. We think it might've been a little bit, um, you know, one of the, um, crew, I think fell over at one stage as well, which was near this. So you are just, the whole time on edge, the skipper was always trying to think for everyone and super on edge But I say traumatic because I didn't ever feel even average in that time. Every day I felt quite very ill and as if my health was failing me Um, because when you don't keep food down, it's just a sense like you have no energy, no vitality, Mm. but then you're getting on the water and you're paddling. So I had to accept in that time of feeling 10 20%, if that, but as long as I could put that first stroke in the water, the only way out of that situation was moving forward. Mm. So that what was driving me as well as the greater purpose was let's keep moving because if we stay here, we're in this hell for longer than we have to be.
0: And how do you deal with, sorry about mental, physical, like on the water, but you're in a very enclosed space with a bunch of people you don't know that well, but you probably know really well now. How do you all Get along for the whole time. Because I'm sure there's got to be points where you're like, oh, you are just driving me and saying, I'm really tired. And there's no reason why you drive me saying you are. Yeah. How, like you've got 40 feet. So how do you okay. separate?
1: So take like a size of a large lounge room yeah and throw seven people in there who have never met each other. Some yeah. have met each other prior to the trip, don't know each other well, into a living environment. On a boat, there's no privacy. That's what I soon learned. There is no privacy you're eating together and you're using the same toilet. Um, you know, you're sharing the cabins with others. I'm fortunate to, to have, I had the cabin on my own for that time. Uh, there is absolutely not one space of the boat you go where someone can't see you, hear you. Uh, that was a really challenging part of it. Yeah. Um, because I was so seasick, I spent majority of the time either outside or just inside the door. I didn't go down to my cabin for, I think it was five days. I had to get the crew or um, my support crew to grab my clothes and everything. I was too sick to go down there. So basically even eating dinner when I couldn't sit up straight, I'm laying in front of everyone. I'm getting spoon fed. So any kind of vanity or sense of, you know, that privacy had to go out the window and you had to just trust the no judgment and no one judged me it was that this is what it is and if I wasn't throwing up over the side someone would be on the other side throwing up or someone's on this side throwing up so we all just accepted this was going to be almost like our worst self for these two weeks everyone was wearing the same clothes because there was no washing and we only carry a certain amount of clothes on the boat the same sheets for the two weeks It's like you went into a period where you were almost more like an animal than a human and you did what you had to do to survive. It was like, I've never ever experienced anything like it. It was like being in the jungle, but on water. And all we knew was to keep moving forward out of that jungle. And that was the only way, the only way to do it.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, you just have to, because you just all know that's where you got to get to, but you must have an incredible bunch of people on that boat to be able to... I guess, understand the situation, understand what's going on, understand everyone's purpose to what we're trying to achieve. And that comes a little bit into goal setting. So how are you setting yourself up? Because obviously long-term goal, finish the paddle. Um, other other goals would be um, raising money for mm. suicide prevention, gotcha for life. But each day you must be setting yourself a goal like, okay, i got to get out of bed to start with, mm. or I've got to go and eat a certain amount of food, or I've got to get in my ski, or mm. I've got to sort this out. Mm. Well, how are you setting those up short, medium, long-term? Like, have you got markers that you want to achieve as you're going around Australia? And yeah. how, are you, how are you setting all that up for yourself? It's an awesome
1: question. And something I find that helps me so much is accountability. So basically, um, I always have one of the support crew helping me in the morning. Um, they make me breakfast, yeah. um, they check and ski, they make sure I've got everything. So it's, it's almost like, even though I don't have a coach here, I still have people I'm accountable to. Yep. So there's a cool three in the morning that'll be there, um, the skipper. And then there'll be one of the sailing crew and my support crew helping me. So when I know in the morning, I've got three people willing to be there at 5am and doing that, there's no way that I'm not turning up and doing my job, just like you're accountable to your colleagues, your training mates, your family. Uh, so I get up, basically um, have the brekkie that's there. It's usually um, muesli or oats, something soft with some fruit, yogurt. I get changed into my thermals and basically that whole process is around 45 minutes, a bit of stretching, preparation, and then I'm in the water. So basically the first goal is to get prepared. To be honest, I don't set myself too many goals to start with because with this process, you've got to ease in. So the first goal I have is the first 10K. Mm. Every single day of this paddle, all I think about is the 10K. Um, that's similar to the distance we do back home in a session. You're looking about you know, an hour for that 10K. And the day I'm feeling horrendous. It helps me so much because I think all oh, I need to do is get 10k done. And I remember doing this at swimming training when I was younger. I'd be like, okay, well, just get through the next set. Yeah. And it's almost telling yourself, like, get through the next set and see how you go. But you always know you're going to the next set. So it's like get through 10k and just see. I'm always going past that 10k. Yeah. I always, as I said, front-end it so 130k day, 120k day get through the 10k, then see how far you're going to go before you stop. So it's like the gentle side of my mind, that the hard side knows that I'm going past it. So I have to sort of go back and forth between the two a little bit. Um, now my aim is for one break a day. That's my ideal. So again, the start three breaks a day that added an extra hour and a half, two hours on because my breaks are around 45 to an hour my aim each day i set myself is to stop once per day that means an extra hour and a half or one hour of sunlight at the end of the day and that's what drives me forward so i look for the little positives that kind of teach me um, that toughness or the incentives to work hard now so i think work hard one break you can enjoy the sunlight at the end otherwise you're getting there in the dark and you're not even seeing that island that you get into um so basically then the next step is in my mind, knowing um when my next day off will be so for that whole week that's my block until the day off so you're essentially got little blocks anyway that are put in place for you
0: yeah Um,
1: the block i'm uh, the day off i am trying to put myself in a calorie surplus so i'm in a calorie deficit for that whole week i then need to try and catch up the calories as best i can Um, in terms of the actual overall paddle i work towards each thousand kilometers so we're at 5,000 kilometres now, my next one in my mind is to get to 6,000 K, which will take us up the Western Australian coast, somewhere near the top. Uh, that's been a big milestone for me. And we always celebrate it. As you've seen some of our videos, the yeah. boys did the doughies on the jet ski the other day around me, which was a total surprise. And it's really cool having the excitement of the crew around for those thousands as we tick them off. So it's sort of like breaking your day. The first thing you do, and it's like life in general, Get going, have mm. an awesome brekkie or if you don't eat brekkie, you know, start your day in a positive way. That might be having a drink of water yeah. and getting going training or do something you know that you love. Start your day in a positive way. That's what I do. I'm surrounded by awesome people. Positive way, first 10K, then where am I going to break? Give yourself that incentive to work hard early and then it's working towards the rest day and then the 1000 k That would be my big goals at the moment.
0: And do you think being an Woman and having that sort of mindset throughout your career as an athlete and and probably through your career as as a dietitian as well, just trying to be better in yourself, are you finding that was kind of instrumental in allowing you to even get started in doing this? Because that self-belief that you've had in yourself for being able to achieve results throughout your competitive career allows you to get up every day and go, well, I'm gonna do that every day. And nobody else is doing this, probably in the world yeah. right now.
1: And I think absolutely, I think looking back and it's some of the realizations I've had have been, you know, the importance of my my dad and my mom in instilling self-belief. And when you're told from a young age, yeah you you can do that you know like oh I want to um you know go and try debating at school it's like yeah good you can do that or I want to go and like learn chess or like dad teaching chess it's like the constant messaging that you're having from a young age is to have belief in yourself and that you're capable Mm. and you absolutely need to have that and it's sort of like that's that's all you've ever known so you have that sort of ambitious attitude I think it's something even when you don't have it as a child you can develop it later as well and and surround yourself with amazing people who empower you and lift you up and we said the other day you know you look at the five closest people around you they should be positive and empowering Mm and it gives you a really good snapshot into your own life I think to a certain degree so yeah I, I don't think however I would have been emotionally mature enough to take this on even mid twenties or even a couple of years ago. I think it's taken until 31 to have the resilience and self-belief to do this because a lot of the time you have this epic support crew. They're incredible, but you're in solitary confinement. You are in isolation for that whole day. So when the little devil on your shoulder comes out and says, you're really hurting today, like this is going to be a big day, you have to have that angel on the other side saying, that's cool though because you're going to get it done. Like it won't look great at all, but, you know, you're proud of yourself and you you have that belief that's always there and that shines through at the end of the day. And I think, um, yeah, I haven't realised until having so much time to think about it recently, just that importance of those around you that empower but that drives that self-belief as well. That's got to be there too.
0: Oh, it's instrumental, I believe, when you're setting out to do anything, you've got to first believe that you can do it. And then getting started is usually the hardest thing. I know when I, I speak to people about this type of thing, it's always about just just give it a go. Mm-hmm. And I think for myself, being early 20s or late teens, there's just no way that I could do most things. I'd be always looking for somebody else's approval or I'd be looking for somebody else to say that I can do it. But at the end of the day, you have to be responsible for your own destiny and you have to continually just be pushing yourself to the next level, and that's something that you're obviously doing each and every day when you're out in the water.
1: And tapping in with that
0: gut feeling too. Like, I mean, we have really good instincts on things usually,
1: and um, you know, others won't know how you're feeling about something or your passion for certain projects. So it's cool to sit down and go through pros and cons and and think with your brain, but with this project it was in my gut that I knew this was something I had to do and if I to be honest would have sat there and written out the list of pros and cons the cons would have far outweighed the pros so if it's something again within reason that you want to chase and you never want to have those regrets you've got to go for it and back yourself and yet that can take time and it can take um, years as well. And that's why often people say that growing older is such a cool thing mm. because you do come into your own and you know where, where you find the joy and you know your passion. So, um, you know, we all make mistakes. However, you might start something and you realise it's a mistake, but at least you gave it a shot. And I think that's something that I have really learned through this is this could have gone either way. As I said, I could have got a week in and absolutely had to, to bail out and felt like I let everyone down but um you take a risk on something and sometimes it pays off
0: it is incredible I think you learn over time that each decade maybe every five years up until you're at 20 but then every decade from there you feel like you learn a lot I remember when I turned 30 I looked back on the last 10 years you're like holy shit I'm 30 like I've got I haven't done this I haven't done this Then you look back you could up and you're like I did all of this though but then you do become more sure of yourself and I've definitely noticed that the last like few years like Um, having Bailey like having like organizing to build a house and set up a foundation somewhere um, setting it like my own business goals and just like doing stuff for me and not looking for anybody's approval just doing it because I want to do it and if people like it they'll be there if they don't like it it doesn't matter
1: totally i think that you're absolutely i've become more sure of ourselves in our 20s we're always in a bit of a rush we're Mm -hmm. always in a rush to prove whether it's to ourselves and others or both um you know and achieve and achieve and your 30s can be it's awesome like yeah 31 now like yourself as well um you know hitting that 30 you just can sit back realize how far you've come and 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 learn. I think it's definitely where you take those learnings and start to implement them. And it's really exciting. I say all the time, I'm so excited to be like a six-year-old woman and <laughs> you just, you know, you feel like that wisdom will come later because I'm still making so many mistakes. And um I can't wait. You got to do things in your life where um you know it, it's the thrill of the ride it's outside the comfort zone and it gives you a hell of
0: a story at the end of the day and the other thing that we just mentioned as well like trusting your gut instinct mm-hmm. I, I learned that over the last what, five years or so and i probably didn't trust it enough when i was younger but you know what you need to do and you've already told yourself what you need to do but you look at validation and yes. you learn as you're getting older and, and when you'd be on the water every day you'd be like I got to do this. I need this. Like you, be like it might be, it might be fluids. It might be food. It yeah. might be. I need to change the music. It's driving me yeah. insane. I need to talk to someone right now. Yeah. i gonna. Like, oh, these are just things I'm guessing, but yeah. I'm sure that you've got to trust yourself every day and go. I need to fix that now. Otherwise, it's going to spiral.
1: Absolutely. And you need to filter out other things as well. So there might be on the boat, um, they're having issues with the sailing or something's going on there. And I've learned each day to filter certain information. I feel like life's the same as well. There's always going to be distractions and advice coming in left, right and center. But you need to figure out what's going to be beneficial for you what's going to help in that moment and you're going to be a better person able to help others as well so sometimes it's learning what you get caught up in and what you don't and knowing and coming back and trusting that gut and that's um it's a really cool feeling when you do that and you follow it through and it's the right thing to do too yeah
0: and going forward for you now now you've learned so much over this first 5000 kilometers how are you approaching the next stage of your journey and I guess, how different is it from your approach when you first started?
1: Yeah, it's been so important to have this week off to reset and actually soak up and enjoy a little bit of of what we've done to some degree. You can't rest on your laurels too much. But uh, I am a different person to when I started this journey on the 19th of December. On the 19th of December, I was, um, you know, again, Bonnie Hankoff, the athlete who wanted to rush around and do this. And, you know, if I can beat six months, that's awesome too and not um, probably focus on the experience and the learnings along the way and again the greater purpose of the project now it's Bonnie Hancock this is a Shoreham you know it's a Shoreham Partners Paddle of Oz and that's what we're doing we're paddling around this amazing country you just have so much respect for Australia so there's there's paddling around and doing a certain time frame, but then there's also the experience and the self-growth along the way. And, you know, one of those things is um, I had no patience before on the 19th of December, I'm now learning that to get through 12, 14 hours a day, it's patience and it's slowing down. Mm. And the cool thing with that as well is, um, you know, if I can pass on any of those learnings to people, I know that through mistakes I've made myself and, and those learnings, not only about raising money for Gotch for Life, but that message that you can get out to others in in going through your own struggles, you know, your mental health through the bite and how you coped and dealt in the support team. Um, For me, it's about um, knowing sort of afterwards where I can take this experience and continue to help others in that space. So there's so much more that's come out of this paddle than I ever would have imagined. Yeah which is really, really cool. And again, we can be very narrow-minded in our approach and just focus on the achievement and miss all of the other amazing things along the way. Yeah, it's
0: almost like the, the 80-20 rule. You're, yeah. you're focusing like so much on that yeah. um, that goal and that's like 80%, but then you, that 20% is actually your 80%. You're, just, you're only learning that now, which is kind of cool as yeah. you progress. And I think you just learn that. And because you're doing such an immersive experience, mm. you're getting a lot of, I guess, general life lessons really quickly mm. because you just have to learn, you have to adapt, you have yeah. to just be ready each and every day to, to yeah. I guess, take on a new challenge.
1: We say, um, and I, and this is something I made up, but it feels true, um, is that the, the emotions we experience, and that's myself and the crew when we have these hectic experiences, the emotions we experience in the day is similar to what people would experience in a month or a week mm. like it's it's joy celebration it's feeling low and down in the dumps it's feeling it's trying to pick yourself up it's feeling determined it's feeling helpless and it's all in the space of one day and yeah. uh, you know it's it's crazy so the resilience that we're building is uh is really really cool and uh I never expected for that to happen. Again, it was just um, a narrow mind of focus. So I think in life as well, you can take it. And if it's, you know, at the end of the day, we've got our routines and structure, which is great. But when you do your training session, take that bit of moment at the end to enjoy the sunset or Mm. take that bit of time to stop and be present and enjoy where you are. Because you can get so caught up in the goals and achievements. We don't stop and take that time. That's what I'm learning.
0: Yeah. Mike, that and that's so critical cool because I learned that when I was traveling a lot around racing stand-ups um and, and ocean skis and whatever it was and I think when I was still doing self life saving in, in that first sort of stage of my career I was just going to do the achievements I just wanted to race I wanted to do well but then as I got older and as I got more I guess, experience by traveling, it was always important for me to actually experience the place around it, experience the people, experience the culture, um, learn that I can't race it 100% all the time. And that doesn't really matter. Like, I do want to do well, and I want, but it's not as critical as, um you and I have traveled for five years together, you know, and we've been to so many amazing spots. And yes, I got some success. And then sometimes I didn't get success, but I actually felt like I got more success yeah. a lot of the time because I was experiencing things yeah. around the achievements that I wanted to create for myself. So, Absolutely. yeah, it's it's cool that you're sort of experiencing that same process mm-hmm. on, on your journey.
1: That's it. Like winning a gold medal is, again, so self-fulfilling and excellent, but it doesn't always make you a more wholesome or better person. It's the journey to get there. Mm-hmm. It's, um you know, actually the, the travel and, as you said, the cultural experience that that's what makes that trip so um you know at the end of the day individual achievements are awesome but um what is your story and what growth have you seen in that time and yeah i think this has definitely sparked my my love for not only nature and the outdoors but travel as well and we've met some really cool people while traveling around too i'm excited to to see more but well, there's been covid's influence that to some degree yeah but it's in these little small towns like lake Ent- Lake sentrance where you run into someone who's um you know a local that's been there for 15 years and it's uh, it's learning from other's stories as well it's been awesome
0: yeah and do you have um, going forward like throughout your plan obviously you're going to have to go up through Geraldton, Carnarvon, mm-hmm. um, up towards Exmouth, Broome. Mm-hmm. And I, honestly, I don't know past there. I think it's like mm-hmm. Kununara, and then you go across to Darwin and all these different places. Um, do you have a plan of attack for that? Or is it, is, it, is it one day at a time? Is it 10 days at a time? Like, how are you guys looking at all these different things? Because it's a lot to process. And I'm sure your ground crew and, and Matt and his team are just having to constantly plan and, and trying to understand the roads, understand understand the access the mooring points all these different things and yeah you've got to wing it to some extent but you've got to understand what you're doing as well
1: absolutely it's a bit of both and it has been since the start so the short-term planning which is like looking one day ahead what are the winds doing what are the currents doing what are the tides doing what's the swell doing and you know how do Deal, which comes into it a certain amount but basically um, it's all very much influenced by weather patterns so if we're going to have a big day with the tailwind but we are going we are trying to get that 130 120k mm-hmm. if it's going to be a headwind where we think we're smart we're, we're smart about it Where are uh, we're maybe going for 60, 70 or so. We might do half of the distance. Um, I've found I can push a bit further towards the 100 into the headwinds now. It's a big day though. So we've got the short-term analysis I do with the skipper every evening before the next day. Every single evening we have a chat. Um, Then there's the longer-term planning. So we're basically working with the land crew for the next week while we're in the sort of civilised areas. It's not too civilised. A bit of it gets quite rugged. Up for the next, say, couple of hundred kilometres. Once we hit those deserted, barren stretches, it's got to be by boat. So basically, we stay out deep in the ocean. We take the point to point. We take the shortest route. We don't hug the coast. Um, and basically, yeah, we stay on the catamaran. The catamaran's able to anchor into little spots, um, you know, obviously not into marinas. It might be headlands or it might be a cove. And the skipper figures out where those anchorages are. So It's a bizarre one when you don't have the option sometimes it's sort of bonnie. We've got to get one 40K in today because the next anchorage is that far. There's nothing in between. So it'll be me trying to get as far as I can, whether we have to motor the last 10K sometimes, Mm. but there's no option. And that's what it puts it onto me. I know I've got that job because for the safety of everyone, I've got to try and paddle as far as I can. Um, So a bit of both land crew into boat, taking it one day at a time, but also knowing the terrain that's coming up and
0: being smart about that. And when you're, so when you're across going across the bike, you obviously couldn't find anchorages. Did you have like a sea anchor that you dropped to sort of hold your position or you just mm. drift overnight and you go, well, we got to motor back to here?
1: Literally, it was it was drifting. We were we were drifting kilometers and kilometers and then motoring back. And the feeling of motoring into that headwind or into the swell is, it makes me sick to think about it now. Um, there's a strategy they have that That's heave to. To heave to is when you put the sails up and it essentially holds the boat sideways to the swell and sort of, I'm going to explain this totally wrong, they'll laugh at me, the sail crew, but it basically sits the boat there. It's often as stable as the boat can get. So that's a strategy they use in sailing. That works some of the time. Mm. Some of the time the swells were so big, I have images of my mind of uh, Lily, one of our crew, uh, driving at the helm and like five meter waves coming basically over the boat and her just driving this 20 year old female driving this boat up over the swell and I was laying there on the bench and the whole wave just washing over the boat so you know it's just crazy to think about what we went through and again 3k out so it's knowing the boat they do as sailors and it's using that. And sometimes that's to let the boat drift 20 kilometres and then move back to the start when I get going. Are
0: you tethered to the boat in those situations or are you just hanging on?
1: We, when we're outside of the area of safety, we have to be, uh, we have safety lines, we have to be clipped on and you have to have a life jacket on out there or after dark. So there are safety measures, myself, when I get in the water, I'm I'm on my own. Essentially, the boat's there. I try not to go further than a couple of hundred meters if I can, um, and I'm essentially got my life jacket on and again a safety line. So the leg leash nowhere near enough out there in those swells. i have got a carabiner. I'm clipped from my life jacket to the ski, and I've fallen off so many times in the big swells at the end of like hundred k day and it's a lot it's a safety line that'll keep the sketching
0: and speaking of the safety line i know you're doing a lot of paddling at night what is that experience like i've done a couple of paddles at night and very like just at like um dusk and you're like oh geez this is like kind of a weird experience are you getting used to paddling at night is it scary to paddle at night and you're doing hours at a time
1: yes and no to both of those things it's crazy it's like Again, the purpose of the project and that goal that I have far outweighs any fear that I have. But you just imagine, often it's pitch black. So there's plenty of times there's no moon. You've got the stars, but they only provide a certain amount of light. You're pretty much in the darkness Um, you've got your boat I like to sit on the starboard side of the boat so I'm sitting on the right hand side the starboard light is green the port side on the left side is a red light that doesn't cast as good of a light into the ocean so I sit on the starboard side of the boat I sit about I'm going to say anywhere from one to two meters away from the boat and I call it my window that's like my little alley i have is about one and a half meters i have to stay in if i go outside of that any further i'm in pitch black and i can't see a thing if i cross more towards the left i'm hitting the boat and hitting a 10 ton boat is not ideal i've done it plenty of times and i wouldn't recommend it on your ski or on your body um the swells are constantly coming from either direction so i'm just paddling and trying to balance stay in an alley of one and a half meters if I go too far forward up towards the starboard light, I'm blinded, I can't see because of the light. If I go to further past that, I get plunged into the darkness. If I fall behind the boat, I can't see because I lose that starboard light. So it's literally a section of about, I'd say one to one and a half metre across and maybe two metres either side. And the boat's going a certain speed with sails or with engines. So I have to hold that exact speed. It's hectic, it's draining, but it's exhilarating as well. Um, I try now to do no more than a couple of hours of it. Yeah. And I've had plenty of times where I've fallen into that water towards the boat. You just miss it. The boat sails, they can't stop for 500 metres and I'm plunged into the icy depths, basically pitch black. And I remember a time trying to get into the ski and I couldn't and I'm kicking my legs and I thought, something's going to take me now it's going to take me because I can't get into that ski and somehow you find a way just to get up and get going again but that's very terrifying
0: yeah well I can only imagine being a a paddling at night trying to stay in a a 1.5 meter square and Mm -hmm. do you have do you have lights on your boat as well like do you like what other safety gear are you taking when you're on these paddles because yeah it's it's you are with a boat but then you're very quickly not with a boat
1: it happens so quickly. You can be having a conversation next to you in the water. So we have the protocol that three blows on the whistle um, means I'm okay. So three are continuous is no good, is get there quickly, and nothing is no good either. Yeah. So it's taken while to develop protocols. I've got LED lights on the back. I've got a white light and a red light, but again, once I fade to a certain Distance behind, they can't see them very well. I've obviously got my life jacket on and I'm tethered um, via the safety line. So we've been trialing the whistle. Um, it works pretty effectively. And um, basically, the person on Bonnie watch, so I have someone watching me at all times, will call Bonnie's off to the person at the helm. Um, and there's a third person on standby, they will work to stop the boat as soon as possible. But when it's 20 knot winds, that boat might sail for 500 meters, so I'm on my own in the dark for 500. I'll get back in and paddle up to the boat. There's been a couple of times the boat's had to turn around and come back to me. Um, It's never entirely smooth, but they do a wonderful job and it can be pretty terrifying for both of us when it happens.
0: Do you have a compass on your boat or something like that where you can to self-navigate if you get stuff? Like, do you know where the land is? Uh,
1: Not at all. you just winging it? I'm yeah. literally just winging it. And um, I've got a radio to the boat, which is awesome, but that boat is everything. It's my lifeline. It's my safety. If I got lost out there, we often make jokes like, oh, you know, would you get dropped out here for a million dollars and try and find your way back? No way. Because the ocean, once you're in it, all you're going off is the, the swell and the wind and knowing that it's coming from a you know southerly direction or southeasterly, easterly and, and that's what guides you. On top of the boat, um, there's a little arrow like a compass that says which way the wind's coming from. I'm always looking at that. Yeah. Um, I can tell you that being lost at sea would be absolutely horrifying. It's, it's disorientating out there.
0: And it sounds like you've really learned to respect the elements and respect how... Minuscule and, I guess, um, small. The yeah. human population is when they're not together, and we're not in these communities that we live in. When we're out, when you're out in the ocean and by yourself all, with a small crew, but and quickly by yourself like you've got to survive
1: it's everything it's very humbling it's a humbling experience you realize that out there you don't matter in the grand scheme of things like all of the marine life are around you they've got their ecosystem like we're in their world and I feel that every single day but I also feel so blessed to be in their world as well
0: yeah and um when you when you're like going through this journey and you're trying to raise money for God's for Life How difficult is it to raise money? Because I know it's not the easiest process. Mm -hmm. Like I've spoken to a couple of people who've done paddles or I've done a paddle from um, bus... uh, Where do we we go from? Uh, Donser Road Ramp to Perth and obviously the section of water that you've paddled along now. And it's not the easiest thing to do. So how are you gaining interest to raise money? Mm -hmm. And how are you... like? getting people to separate from their money because it's not an easy thing to do. And I think people, when they do fundraising activities, they think it's going to be easy. And I've learned from experience. It's, it's really difficult. So you're doing a great job. I think you raised almost 20 grand now, but how are you gaining that interest and how are you sharing this story to allow people to buy into your journey to, to donate to suicide prevention?
1: It is really tough. And it's like, you know, even at the moment you've got the the crucial or the vital funds needed for the flooding that's going on on the East coast. And I mean, there's been some towns affected by that Moorland Bar and that kind of area of Iron Bay. So, you know, there's a lot of sort of priorities that people have in their life and they diverted in different ways which is so fair um basically yeah we are trying to tell the story um through through our social media we're getting the message out we're um, letting them know that this is what this project is about and I cannot tell you again like there's times I, I don't even think about the record for like weeks at a time it's the passion of raising funds and awareness for that cause that's driving me um, so all we can do is basically ask for help I, I did a um a talk at sean partners the other day and and sort of um express the the importance of, of gotcha for life to them um you know we do videos on social media but Wherever we go in whatever town we go to, we're talking to the locals and we're telling them about the reason why we're doing it. And that's all we can do. And I absolutely understand it. It can be really difficult. We're so fortunate. Amongst the $20,000 that we've raised, that's made up of people donating $5 because that's all they have. It's made up of people donating a couple of thousand dollars because they can. So I think as well as the funds it's the awareness so every time someone chips in you know they might give us ten dollars in cash somewhere their mind in that moment is making that contribution towards a better world and a better you know better mental health overall for people and in that time that they do that they might then jump on gotcha for life and have a look at some of the tips for helping someone Mm -hmm. if they come to you um, you know in a bad place so it's getting the you know mental fitness mental health got to life it's getting it on people's lips and it's getting them talking about it as well and i think one of the big influences is hopefully this project is going to happen afterwards as well and that's when i personally and others around will be able to commit the time and effort into that so anything we raise now is an absolute bonus it gets people talking and after we'll continue to work in that space too
0: and and what do you like normally like after these type of things people write books they do mm. talks like are you plan to move into those type of things as well
1: yeah it's really really exciting actually um because i've always loved writing i'll um uh, yeah i'll definitely be writing a book after this um you know as to where that starts or or, or when that starts you know it's um a bit up in the air but i'm hoping i'm um, straight after and i'm um, certainly doing a bit of journaling at the moment and should be doing more but i uh, just yeah. to refresh my memory uh, i feel like the stories we're experiencing have to be shared and the super cool thing about having videographers on board is we're going to be making a documentary as well so awesome. again the length of that or the format of that um we're unsure of we we're getting some really great advice in that area um but yeah it's about the third part of this project it was initially the record definitely it was doing good always but the third
0: part was sharing it with others so that's going to be a crucial piece of that puzzle and now so coming to, talk, I guess, towards the end of the interview, but let's talk a little bit about, like, the sponsors. I know you briefly touched on all of them, but can you just can maybe go into a little bit of detail about how they've helped you, mm-hmm. how they've got this project across the line? Um, I know you told a good story the other night about how you, you rang um, Earl Evers from Shoreham Partners to, to basically bring mm-hmm. this project to fruition.
1: Absolutely. And it's it's been and Partners from the start who have allowed this to happen. And, um, you know, I say that to Earl, without his not only the support obviously uh, financially but that belief um, from someone like himself someone who's been so successful in what he's done and not only that is a wonderful human and you know through the Sean Partners Foundation they're constantly contributing to different causes Um, but basically yeah I met with him initially I was just this girl who liked paddling skis you know who I'd, I'd met him several times through the ocean paddling series that gave him this crazy idea and said I'm I'm going to paddle around Australia and in that moment it would have been so easy for him to think of all of the cons and you know why would we associate with someone doing something crazy there's not a very big chance probably that this person's going to pull this off and he said tell me more and so having that belief from him and he said all right you know give me a call when you get back to the Gold Coast and then that call led to a Zoom call and then um, you know Sean Partners came on board Basically, that belief in from someone like him means the world and makes you, yeah, it makes you feel like you can do it, like I was already doing it, but we were talking about those awesome people around you who can just empower you too. So Shoreham partners have allowed this to happen. Um, they're amazing in what they do, they're very inspiring. You know, it then comes to people like Bennett and Nordic, you know, who are on since the start to give you skis that are super expensive we couldn't afford on our own. Um, Gardner cars on the Gold Coast gave us a Ford Ranger to take around Australia, you know, custom built it with all of the extras. It's crazy. Um, You know, we got our um, jet ski as well given to us. So uh, we're absolutely so, so lucky. Um, That was North Queensland car and truck rentals. Uh, to give us the jet ski is is so generous so it's these different sponsors along the way that not only support you financially but give you the belief that this can happen and it truly feels like a team effort we could not do this on our own financially but also you know just in terms of that belief so i feel every day like i've um i've got people lifting me up and that drives you you forward as well in that space
0: that's awesome so I think we'll wrap it up there. I think it's been an amazing um, chat with you to hear all about, obviously, your Ironman and the career, becoming a professional athlete, um, going to dietetics a little bit. We probably touch on that too much, but Amazing stuff about the Shoreham Partners of So I'm really looking forward to watching you keeping on travelling around Australia. Hopefully we can do another one of these when you do finish off mm-hmm. and you do get back to Mermaid Beach on the Gold Coast. Awesome. But thank thank you, you so
1: much. And thank you to everyone for the love and support so far. It's really felt. And, um, yeah, got you for life. All the details are, as you said, on the Instagram about Bonnie Hancock. So, We'd love some support
0: there. Yeah, so check her out, um, Bonnie Hancock on Instagram. She's got a link tree, um, which has all the details of what she's doing and, and where you can donate and to find out more where she's going step-by-step step along her journey. Um, big thanks to everyone who's watching. If you're listening or if you're listening, go head over to YouTube if you want to watch. Um, if you're watching on YouTube, you can always listen to this back on your favourite podcast channel. Um, this one's been brought to you by Booth Training and I will see you guys for the next one. Cheers.